everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Uh, my, my name... My fist's hitting. Uh, thing ring, do your thing. My name is William <laughs> DeBiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I guess I'm a critic, I suppose. Do you do, 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 do like things... Just things in general. Yeah, just the Cana- things, or do you, or do you the return the right to criticize the nineteen eighty nine Canadian horror film things? No one likes the nineteen eighty nine. No, that's horror film uh, things. I, I, I that's stand, seriously one of the worst movies I, ever. I made. stand by my opinion that is in contention for one of the worst films ever. Yeah, no, that's, and, and, and that that's phrase is there. used a lot, but this in, no, no. in this case, I actually mean it. No, no, we we don't throw phrases like "worst movie ever" around lightly. Mm. Now, declaring number one, that's difficult to do. Saying it's in the running. That I'm comfortable saying is definitely things is up there. Things <laughs> is I not I'm not entirely sure. And we have so many movies to review this week, but I want to take a moment here. We can review things as well. Why not? Things I haven't seen things in a long time, and I'm not entirely sure it wasn't a dream. That's how I felt about watching things. Like I watched like the, I think memory serves. I watched the first ten minutes of things, mm. and then I came down to your apartment because we were living in the same building at the time, and I was uh. like Whitney. Mm. Can you watch Things with me? Because I don't think I have any idea what I'm in for. And then we watched Things, and it was uh, awful. I have it on DVD. <laughs> so do I. I mean, you have to, right? No, you, you, this yeah. is something that, like, sometimes you own things because you love them. Sometimes you own things because you need them. And sometimes you own things just because you need to prove to other people that they're real. That, that it exists. Yeah. You, you can't just go by this weird description. Just, look up look up Things, by the way. It's, yeah. It is... It's something else. If you're at the point in your movie watching uh, uh, life that you aren't just looking for the best movies, but you're looking for the biggest movie experiences, good or bad, mm. thanks. If, if you're if you're so jaded, like all your taste buds have been shaved off, and the only one left can taste so, like complete garbage. Things. That that's what that's when you watch something like things. It's things. the only thing that can make you feel anymore. Uh, I don't know if any of the movies we're reviewing this week on the show are as bad or at the very least as noteworthy as things, but by God we're reviewing a lot of them. Mm-hmm. On the last episode of Critically Acclaimed, Whitney and I presented our picks for the best movies of twenty twenty, and then uh for a couple of reasons we had to take a week off, and now we have a lot of catch up to do, and mm-hmm. there's a ton of movies that are already out in twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one, we're rolling ahead. And, uh, and yeah. some of them we missed, so uh, I'm gonna have to play catch up. Uh, later on, we didn't. I didn't get to see Lockdown. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but what we're reviewing on this week, uh, this week's show, is Psycho Goreman. PG Psycho Goreman. I've seen it put both ways. I honestly oh, don't okay. know what the official title is. Uh, identifying features. Uh, Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself. Pixar Popcorn over at Disney Plus. Uh, Our Friend. Coming Clean. Nocturno. MLK FBI, that's one movie with a, uh, a, a backslash in it. In it yeah. uh, the Marksman, Outside the Wire, The Dig, and One Night in Miami, and because we didn't see enough movies. <laughs> Nine wasn't enough. Well, the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club is back. Uh, there might come a point later this year in which we spin that off into its own thing, but for now it is back. Uh, and the last chunk of our show, when we talk about new releases, since we're watching pretty much all our new releases on various streaming services, we want to make sure we don't ignore all of the catalog titles on those streaming services. So every week, Whitney and I will review one classic movie or one noteworthy movie at any rate 
that one or, I, one or more of us haven't seen. Mm. Uh, that movie will be selected via poll on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, and uh, this week, we picked 1970s films on the Criterion <laughs> channel. And uh, I suspected you'd pick something like, oh, Clute. I've seen Clute, so oh, I, 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 I haven't seen Clute. Yeah. Now, you, you tend to go like more of a horror realm well, or something well, I, like that. I, That's I, what I often do. On the, on the poll, I selected Clute and I selected Claire's Knee, the Eric Romero film. Mm-hmm. And I selected uh, Derek Jarman's Jubilee, which is about uh, Queen Elizabeth traveling 400 years into the future and finding out what the punk scene is like in like late 70s, early 80s Britain. It's amazing, by the way. I've seen Jubilee. I haven't. Yeah. I heard it's great. And uh, there, was, there was a big sort of push for Jubilee at the end where everyone's like, maybe we should pick Jubilee. That sounds awesome. But instead, in kind of a runaway, uh, it was Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, which I have not seen. <laughs> I have not seen actually you, quite a few you, of the Godzilla you, movies. You poor empty soul that you have not seen Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla movies were kind of haphazardly available when I was young. Like my video mm-hmm. store only had a couple of them. They didn't air on TV all the time, or at least not when I saw them. Um, so I saw like a couple here and there, but there's only a few I had vivid memories of. Mm-hmm. As a kid, the only one I had vivid memories of was Destroy All Monsters and that awful one. With Godzilla's talking son. Oh, um, all monsters attack. Yeah, oh, that, that's a bad that's it, movie. it's maybe the worst Godzilla movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've seen several since. Um, I'm particularly fond of the original and Shin Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen some of the big, you know, just monster fight ones. So <laughs> the idea that there was a Mecha Godzilla one on there uh, seemed fun, and I know that's the first Mecha Godzilla movie, and mm-hmm. I love the idea of a Mecha Godzilla. So let's. Let's do it. <laughs> At the end of this Let's podcast, we're reviewing Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. And how appropriate, since everyone's talking about Godzilla vs. Kong. That's true. If, if you were on, uh, as of our recording today, mm-hmm. they released the, the preview for the next Godzilla, American Godzilla movie. Yeah, when, which when Godzilla will once again, for the second time, uh-huh. fight King Kong. Uh, my theory uh-huh. is that uh, Kong is going to win, A, because he's the American monster, and B, or at least the American created monster, yeah. from Skull Island, but... Uh, but B, because if you recall in Kong Skull Island, the movie, mm. uh, they never called him King Kong. He was referred to as a king a couple of times and like euphemistically, mm. they never called him King Kong. So my theory is the big bravura ending yeah. is going to be, he beats Godzilla and everyone's like, well, I guess he's the king now. Nah. King Kong. And everyone's like, yeah. And they, and they brawl for a little bit, but then they decide to resolve their differences with a basketball contest. <laughs> And, of course, uh, King Kong isn't as tall as Godzilla, and he's worried about uh, having some problems. So uh, he enlists Michael Jordan. <laughs> That's right. To help. A 200-foot-tall Michael Jordan. Well, you have to make him taller. Yeah. I mean, come on. Who, who has the voice of Spike Lee and says things like, look, Mom, I can fly. You know, we're getting a new Space Jam this year. Uh, no, no, we're not. <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge that. You can have a new Space Jam when we get a new Joe's apartment. Those are the rules. <laughs> Those are the rules I just made up. Thank you. Yeah. Make we're not Joe, fans of Space Jam. Make Joe's apartment too, then I'll let you have Space Jam. Anyway, let's move on and review some films. Uh, 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 that long list of movies, mm-hmm. only one of them we both saw. Like, we both saw the same movie, only one on that giant list. <laughs> so let's just start with that. All right. And uh, is it too early to declare the best movie of the year? Uh, it, it's great. Um, we're gonna be we're talking about Psycho Gorman. Uh, Psycho Gorman is a, a Canadian horror movie, a horror comedy film. Yeah, uh, and it's from the the director of The Void, which is a film I haven't seen. Oh, okay. Uh, 
And uh, I would say not. The premise is uh, it's it's very uh, very heavily like 1980s inflected as a lot of horror films are these days. And there is a creature, an ancient, evil, Thanos-like monster. Yeah, all-powerful yeah, conqueror of worlds. Yeah, just murders indiscriminately with its bare claws, has uh, an army of these really bizarre guar-looking acolytes, and um, it was fought into submission by this uh, cult of gleaming angel-like robot deities. Uh, and... He couldn't be the, killed. Couldn't be killed, but they put his energy in, like, a magic stone, and, of course, that stone lands on Earth in a kid's backyard. Yeah, well, now. Like, now, that was yeah. thousands of years ago, yeah, and now, the, no, and now the, there's, like, a the couple kids of are, kids. Yeah, it's, it's like in The Gate, where they're yeah. just digging up in their backyard, and they dig up something on Holy. We, we're introduced to two kids. Mm. Uh, there's a little boy named Luke and his younger sister named Mimi, uh, and they are playing Crazy Ball in their backyard. And for those of you who know what we're talking about, Crazy Ball is Calvin Ball. Just you make up your own rules. The, the rules Smart. are completely ridiculous and absurd, and they're the only two people on the mm. planet who would understand them. They're playing crazy ball, and because Luke loses a crazy ball, uh, he has to dig his own grave. And so he digs a giant hole no. in the backyard, and they accidentally unearth this giant, like, mm. he's basically Lord Zed. From Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, oh, if he, Lord he, Zed was actually, like, as violent as one of the Cenobites from Hellraiser. Yeah. Although he looks a lot like Ivan Ooze, because he's, like, yeah. purple and has those features. Yeah. Um, Mimi, luckily, is a complete psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> and she's one she, of the most she's wild a, and, and completely unpredictable characters I've seen in a movie in many years. Yeah, she, she reminded me of the girl from The Box Trolls, just, like... <laughs> Completely macabre little girl. Imagine and, uh, the girl from the box trolls combined with what Harley Quinn must have been like at age eight. That's kind of what you get when you get Mimi. Uh, and so, but uh, she realizes very quickly that this big uh, killer deity can not kill her, and in fact is under her command if she has the magic stone in her hand. Yeah, and she, so she has her own pet, like Lovecraftian death god, and and she thinks that's really keen. And of course, uh, and they end up naming this creature Psycho Goreman, just because they think yeah. that's funny. He says to them, like, what, what's your name? My name is so complicated, it is written amongst the stars. I have been called the Duke of Nightmares. I'm going to call you Psycho Man. No, not Psycho Man. Gore Dude. Psycho Goreman. You're Psycho Goreman. That's the Fine. title. <laughs> and, uh, and... Part of this is a comedy of them just sort of, like, hanging out with this ancient Lovecraftian deity doing stuff. One of their, one of play, their friends they, runs yeah. afoul of Psycho Gorman and gets turned into a brain. Yeah, a giant like, brain with Like a three-foot-tall big... brain with eyeballs. Yeah, who can still talk and stuff and yeah, do and, things. And, and, and it rolls around. His existence really great is ruined. Uh, his whole existence is ruined. Yeah. This is not... This is not, I want to make this something abundantly clear. There is a wonderful childlike energy to Psycho Gorman. This is not a kid's movie. No, this <laughs> is incredibly bloody. It's incredibly gory. It's all uh, practical effects. It It's like... Almost a trauma movie, and how shameless it is. <laughs> but it's made with like the skill of like a reanimator or dead alive, where it's clearly budget was an issue, but they're so inventive <laughs> and they've yeah. got such great designs. The monsters in this movie, mm. there's a lot of them because we see like different alien planets and some other like monsters come down to fight Psycho Gorman. Yeah, some, some of them are puppets, some of them are people yeah. in makeup, and, yeah. they, and they look, you know, they look kind of fake, but they look so clear. 
They're so distinct and interesting. One of the monsters we see in this movie, I love this monster, and I wish I knew what his name was. Uh, he's a giant, um, like, it's, drum it's just full a, of gore. It, it's, it's uh, yeah, there's a character that is nothing but a big metal vat full of, like, rotting human viscera. Yeah, and, like, his and, arms and are, And little like, legs, and it walks around on little legs. And his arms are, like two guns, but they just spew gore at everybody. <laughs> and, like, it's so yeah. fucking weird. Yeah, they really put a lot of thought and energy into the design of the monsters. Like, they're they're making rubber masks. Mm-hmm. They look like rubber masks. These characters don't look realistic, but mm-hmm. they're all practical, so they they at least occupy real space. Yeah, they're tangible, so, like, yeah. you actually are... You, you, we're willing to accept them. Mm-hmm. Also, they're all written in a very funny way. Yeah, they all have their own... Each one has their own sort of, like, backstory, and, like, yeah. this, this one's, like, a dark wizardess of some kind, and so she, like, makes reference oh no but the time you drove a stake through my father's head oh, well now i'm gonna rip your head apart um yeah yeah it, it's i appreciate that attention to detail yeah when when you're making monsters make like think it out don't mm. just make monsters well and, I, and it's a monstrous movie in a lot mm. of ways because it's not you would think this would be the story about how this uh, monstrous, all-powerful overlord uh, is humanized by being forced to spend time with a mm-hmm. little kid. You would also imagine that maybe this, like, hellion child who's, like, really, like, abrasive and abusive to her brother, even though he's older than her, and just has her parents under her thumb and, like, does, like... <laughs> There's this one scene which is just amazingly and hilariously sacrilegious. That just it was I couldn't believe how just how brazen it was, and you just kind of have to go with it because that's the kind of movie this is. And uh, you would think that maybe she would learn a valuable le- no 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 nobody, nobody learns, learns a particular nobody learns any lessons. No one learns a good the, uh... lesson anyway. The one lesson someone learns goes horribly wrong. <laughs> It's really great. I, I admire just how kind of brazenly cynical this movie is yeah. about how Psycho Gorman is this monstrous deity. And the joke of the film is getting us to feel sympathy for that. Yeah. And all of these other forces who are at work to try to stop it are now seen as sort of like bad guys. Yeah. When ordinarily, you know, those would be the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really kind of uncanny how, like, what a great supervillain movie this mm. is. Without apologizing, without trying to make them seem, like, ultra-sympathetic. It's basically just, somewhere deep down, he has a point. Mm. But he's also really evil and violent. The, he can only process any messages he learns through his own evil. Yeah. Yeah, they're so always like, I've, I've, I've learned about these people, and God, they've given me new ideas about killing you. <laughs> like, that's about it. Yeah, that's, that's the best you could hope for. Um, and you, you gotta love it. It's so... The, the tone is perfect, considering how difficult a joke this is. Because it, it could be unwatchably grotesque or violent. Yeah. And instead, it's very watchably grotesque and violent. It, uh, my, my central complaint, though, is its budget. Like, this, yeah. is, this has way bigger ideas than the budget allowed. There's a big fight scene where all of his acolytes appear, and they're clearly, like, shooting at Griffith, Griffith Park. It's like oh, yeah. they're, they're in a park. 
they can't afford to like lock down a lot of shots and do a lot of fast editing. So there's bits where Psycho Gorman is being beset by his army and you'd think they'd be like stabbing him through the head. He's like barely surviving. And it's, it's just a guy in a suit going, ah, while people hit him with sticks. Well, I think the fact it, that it's pathetic is the joke. I think mm, they, they knew how to lean into it and make the rock their yeah, thing. A, a, a little bit, yeah. but uh, it's... It, I, I wish they had just a little more money because yeah, that would have made the film just play a little Here's bit Here's the deal. I want them to have a little more money, but I don't want them to have a lot more money. Not a lot more money. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't this, want this them to do, like, have... motion capture crap. We don't like, need I like CG all the practical in stuff. here. We don't make sure they used a little, but, like, we don't need a lot mm. of CG in here. We definitely don't need major stars to come in mm. and mess with this and, like, bring in all weird expectations. The fact that this feels like it was a made... Pa- a little passion project by weird people. Yeah, that's it. It feels like the kind of movie you just completely discover. Like, you know, imagine you're around in the early 80s and all of a sudden the evil dead comes out Hmm. you don't know any of these people you don't know who (laughs) sam raimi is you don't know who bruce campbell is you might not even have heard of the necronomicon for god's sake although it wasn't called that until the second movie remember first what it was called the first movie it was called necronomicon del mondo in the first one wasn't it it was uh notaram del mondo oh you're right yeah bit of trivia uh but they just again it's there's such a forceful sense of personality and humor and tone mm. and a really imaginative use of horror iconography and violence um, that it just sort of it, it's it's like I don't know man it's it's like hidden warp speed it's just like all of a sudden you're like whoa <laughs> I can see the universe like it's so damned refreshing to see well, a movie this entertaining mm. and this its own thing. And it yeah. works, and I'm amazed that it works. I kept thinking, when is this going to run out of steam? When is this going to run out of steam? When is this going to overplay mm. its hand? When is this going to try to get too schmaltzy? And it never does, but it doesn't play the same joke over and over again. It knows it needs to modulate. Mm. It knows it needs to switch up the plot a bit. And there's like some unexpected events that happen with her parents, uh, Mimi's parents, that I didn't see coming, and they were really cool, and they were interesting. And yeah, it's it's great. This movie's just fucking great. It's, it's just, it's so awesome. Yeah. This movie's just so awesome. And I don't use that word lightly. No. Uh, it just, all, all of the action, all of the monsters, all of the personality that is just bursting forth from this cheapy little, uh, sick little film. I, I, uh, uh just, just filled me with delight. They, there's a, there's an expression and I've heard a lot of screenwriters talk about this or filmmakers. And I think it's true. Mm. If you're making a movie and you're making, especially if you're making an independent movie, um, make the movie you want to see. Yeah. That's the thing. Don't make what you think audiences are paying money for right now, what you think studios are interested in. Make the movie you want to see. And I think about that sometimes. And I think to myself, what's the movie I want to see? <laughs> what always movie I want to see more of? And the answer is Psycho Gorman. <laughs> I want more movies that have this much personality and have this, like, overcome low budgets with this much zeal. Yeah. Uh, and have such distinct and interesting characters. Mimi is a delight. Mimi is an absolutely terrible well, human being, and yeah. she's a delight. She, and she's hilarious because balance. she's so terrible. Yeah. Like, she, she has no compunction about murdering her friends. None. Like, Not at all. Like, it's, it's like she the only reason she hasn't murdered her friends yet is that it hadn't quite occurred to her yet yeah and now that she has this wrathful blood drinking deity on her side then yeah, yeah now it's what? time <laughs> 
Anyway, if you're in the movie, if you love movies with an anarchic spirit, mm. if you love movies that are like gory and funny, um, if you love Power Rangers but you feel like you know, like you really wanted to go like R-rated and crazy, uh, you see Psycho Core Man. It's yeah. so damn good. It's so damn good. I love it, and I and it's, it's way too early to declare anything. One of the best movies of the year. Mm. There's a decent chance this is one of the best movies. This, this would have made my this, top yeah. ten last year. This this one. If this oh had come out gosh. three weeks earlier, yeah. I would have put it on my top ten list. I'm not kidding. I just loved it. Wonderful, gross anarchic spirit. I just did. Yeah. yeah, I really, really dug it. All right. Well, let's move on to something you saw. Tell me right. about. Let's talk about our friend. Uh, our let's do a major about face. <laughs> uh, our friend is a film directed by Gabriella Cowperthwaite. And uh, she has previously done, uh, she did that film Blackfish, the mm-hmm. documentary about SeaWorld. Uh, and this is a true story of uh, a married couple and their friends. The married couple are played by Casey Affleck and Dakota Johnson. The best friend is played by Jason Segel. And it's uh, the story of how, uh, how they first met, which was uh, she's an actress uh, she met him because he was a stagehand uh, at, during a production she was working on. He's a journalist. He's out of town a lot. And it follows a pretty wide timeline from their first meeting uh, through the couple having kids, the kids growing up a little bit, and her eventual uh, sickness and death to cancer. Wow. And uh, it, it skips around in time a lot, which is kind of an unnecessary uh, element. And there's actually a lot of flashbacks to... Jason Siegel's like love life and what he's going through personally. All of this uh, is meant to just sort of set up that uh, the Jason Siegel character has now reached a point in his life where he doesn't really have a lot going on. Uh, he's working at a sporting goods store, and he realized while he's in this position, this is when uh, the diagnosis comes through that uh, Dakota Johnson has ovarian cancer, and that she's uh, and the prognosis isn't, isn't very good. Mm. And he's out of town a lot. They need help at home with her and with uh, with her health and with their kids. So he kind of moves in and just helps for about a year. And this film is very, very good about capturing a lot of those little, tiny, social, embarrassing, uh, difficult, funny moments that people have when they've been friends for a really long time. Mm. Uh, the These people even though they don't necessarily have a great rapport and they're not always friendly with one another, you can see that they've known each other for a really, really long time. Jason Siegel is great in hmm. pulling out a lot of these kind of warm connections with the characters around him. Uh, and it also uh, doesn't really... It does and it doesn't shy away from some of the more difficult aspects of depicting disease in film. I've seen a lot of films where uh, characters are dying of cancer. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's happens so frequently. It's almost it's 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 a cheap plot device. And indeed, yeah, if you're not really willing to get into the muck yeah. of that, then you're just using it as a plot device. Yeah, and e- it's even really uh, even a film like Fifty Fifty kind of glosses it. Out. That's a glossy film. It could have yeah. been a lot more. Raw. I, I like that movie. I like the, right. I like it's the movie as, fine, but it's it's, it's, it's yeah, really um, uh, I, I think the prime offender is Stepmom. I've uh, never seen Stepmom. Mm. I know all about Stepmom, and I was so <laughs> offended. I was like, I don't really want to. <laughs> I don't want to go. There go will for come step-mom. a day when I have to see Stepmom. I know it. <laughs> and who knows? Like, Maybe I'll find something interesting about it. Go but through man. the, the Jenna Malone filmography, but oh, uh, yeah. in in far too many uh, films about cancer, uh, usually when it's women with cancer. A young woman 
uh, turns into this sort of uh, martyr for the cause of a man to better himself. That's the plot you get in cancer movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, about how she is uh, pure and peerless, and as she wastes away, uh, the man in her life will learn an important lesson about growing up. Or will be so marked by the experience that it'll change his life for the better or for the worse. You're looking at your um, uh, love stories. Your, your, yeah. yeah, your love story. Your uh, Autumn uh, in New York. Well, he's not that young. Uh, uh, heck, even the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy. To a lesser right. to a lesser degree, a, a, lesser a, a degree. monster yeah. calls is more about him than it is about the mom. That's mom true. Is, it is. It's about mom is perfect and peerless. Uh, th- there's true. there's a, a, a like. One third of that is actually kind of leaking in through something like Our Friend, but I think it actually does a pretty good job of the ups and downs of this journey and how uh, how the health does come and go and how she uh, is really incensed and horrified and furious mm-hmm. that her life is being cut short and she knows it. Yeah. And how – and she resents the way the tre- the people around her are treating her. And I think it looks at a lot of those moments uh, just really head on. That sounds so impressive. I got to be honest Mm. here. When I heard about this movie, Mm. it sounded sounded like it was going to be schmaltzy. I'm not going to lie. Like that was the vibe I was getting off of it. And uh, what a a treat Mm. to discover, at least through you. I mean, I'll find out and decide for myself. That there's more to it than that actually handles the topic well. That sounds really impressive. It's not like... the definitive version of this, no. but it, it's it's you know a good it's a good old Hollywood weepy. It's a four hanky kind of movie where it's going to have a lot of really big emotional moments, and yeah, you'll probably cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you resent the film there, for making you cry? Is the no, question. and but that's no, no, you you will not. It, that's it the, that's earns it, it earns its moments, and uh, it does have a lot of big sentimental moments. But we're sentimental people; we yeah. can have those moments in our lives and have those be realistic. Uh, I, I was I, while I was watching this movie, I was reminded over and over again of that speech from the movie uh, adaptation, where um, Charlie Co- the Charlie Kaufman character, the Nicolas Cage character, goes to a screenwriting seminar being hosted by uh, Brian Cox, and uh, this Brian Cox character says he's playing Robert McKee. He's playing Robert McKee, actual, yeah, film, yeah. Uh, actual uh, screenwriting teacher, and. Uh, Charlie Kaufman stands up and and actually questions him, saying, you know, when you're writing these big Hollywood melodramas, doesn't that strike you as being kind of fake, these big moments? Wouldn't it be a better screenplay if you did something a little more nuanced and a little bit duller and just showed, like, the the little down moments in people's lives? And he point—and the Brian Cox character, Robert McKee, points out, well, you know what? Everybody has big moments in their lives, Every day, somebody is going through the best day of their life or their worst day of their life. You know, people betray each other. People kill each other. People fall in love every day. And, uh, you know, what's wrong with telling screen stories about that? And I was from while I was watching Our Friend, it felt like, okay, there are these big kind of schmaltzy sentimental moments, but we as human beings are allowed those big sentimental moments. So it actually does have this weird air of authenticity to it, even though it is this big, shiny Hollywood production. Well, that's a great point. So yeah, so yeah. I uh, so I I found myself kind of taken with this movie. Uh, it's about thirty minutes too long. So it's over two hours, and it can, you can you know you can slice out a lot of it. There's all of this sort of uh, noodling about with the timeline, which didn't really add to much. But uh, yeah, at the end of, at the end of the day, I appreciated its big emotions. Well, okay. Uh, well, let's move on and let's talk about a new film that I saw that you 
didn't, you poor soul. I saw, I saw ten movies in the last two weeks. I want to hear nothing. <laughs> Look, I, I I only saw a few movies. Let mm. me let me try to lure it over here at least. Um, <laughs> this is a new film from Fernanda Valadez that uh, won some awards at last year's Sundance Film Festival. New Sundance Film Festival is happening uh, digitally, like this week. So mm. you know, these things take time sometimes. Uh, this is a very. I really didn't know what to make of this movie for a while. And then when it finally came like crashing together in the third act, I was really very impressed with it. Uh, it's called identifying features and it is about uh, a woman in her late forties in Mexico whose son comes up to her one day and says, I'm going to cross the border into America. Okay. And then he gets on a bus and then she doesn't hear from him for months. Hmm. And she's very worried. And she begins to suspect that something bad happened to him. And she decides to travel to the border to investigate, see if any of the really kind of horrifying number of bodies they find along the border uh, belong to him. Hmm. And uh, when she becomes convinced that he is still out there somewhere, she goes on a journey to try to track him down. And it becomes... It's a really interesting... Because in some respects, it feels like a conventional mystery... Uh, but it's not. And in some respects, it feels like uh, a conventional Western where someone's like, you know, searching for somebody. And, uh, uh, you know, it's the it's the border goes north south in this instance, but it's essentially, you know, the American West and that uh, mentality of it. There's a lot of uh, open deserts, a lot of crime, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, cynicism, a lot of colonialism and um Everyone's story, in some respects, mirrors hers. Uh, there's a woman who, uh, her son went and did the same thing and vanished. And uh, rather than look for him, she assumed that he was out there somewhere or dead. Mm. And uh, she assumed he was dead. And then she found out that he had only died a few weeks ago now. And if she had kept looking, she would have found him. So that inspires our hero to not give up. And then we also see that from the perspective of a young man who made the same choice that her son did and has come to horribly regret it. And as we, as we follow her journey, we begin to wonder, like, are we ever going to find this boy? Is that what this is about? The pieces start coming together and we start learning more. And the movie takes on a more fable-like quality becomes okay. a little less about this sort of hyper-reality. It's a very gorgeously photographed movie. Lots of wonderful vistas. But it becomes less about specific reality and more about the larger moral conundrums mm -hmm. that are facing us as we talk about issues of uh, immigration and uh, the border and how all of these um, situations uh, connect to or attract crime. Hmm. This ends up feeling like it, it. It's not quite a cautionary tale, but it's so close. It's not quite a religious parable, but it's kind of is. Hmm. It's not quite a horror movie, but it gets there kind of. It's a really interesting film in that it, for like seriously for like the two thirds of this, I was thinking this is very confidently presented. The performances are excellent. It's gorgeously shot, but it's a little slow. And then in the last half hour, I'm like, all of this was worth it. I'm so glad we got to this point. <laughs> uh, it really just, you, you sucked me into this world of realism. And now I no longer know exactly where I'm at. 
Okay. And, we, and not in, like, some weird, trippy, hallucinogenic way. Just, I no longer know if this is a movie about realism or not. Or if this is a movie about, uh, you know, psychology. Or this is a movie about belief. Mm. And that's hard to pull off. To make us question something after you've created this contract with the audience. And not make us, like, get mad at you for switch, for changing the rules on us. Mm. Um, so... I don't want to, I can't, unfortunately I really can't tell you about it because I don't want to ruin how it, where it goes and how it gets there and right. like how things change and how the photography evolves. I'm going to press you because it, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's annoying actually because yeah. I think the best parts of the movie are the parts that I'm not allowed to talk to you about because if I told you about them, you wouldn't get that sense of discovery I did. And even talking about it now, I might be building it up too much and that sucks and that may, mm. that wouldn't be the movie's fault. Um, but it sounds really I, fascinating. It's really interesting. I think you dig it. I okay. really do. I think you in particular, Whitney Seibold, would dig it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it starts off as a slow kind of meditative, contemplative drama with some noir elements and some Western elements. And then it becomes a different thing after a while. And its tone changes and its attitude changes. And I think it's, I think it's point changes mm-hmm. in a way that feels mature, but also not hindered by genre expectation. And that's really Which cool. Which is always, always refreshing. Yeah, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool, but it's cool in a way that I think some people aren't going to get into because it's not, like, trying to be accessible. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're into indie cinema, if uh, anything I just said sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend you check it out. Um, if not, this might not be the film for someone who particularly loves mainstream movies and isn't super interested in, like, slower-moving, mm-hmm. independent film kind of vibes. Yeah. Fair enough, but it's still really, really good. You know, I mean, with, with theaters no longer a power player, um, who's to say what mainstream means well, anymore? I, I was thinking about this. Like, usually uh, we refer to January as, fuck you, it's January. Mm. <laughs> because January is when studios dump out all the crap that they thought they couldn't make money of or they think they can get away with because everyone's talking about all the Oscar contenders. Mm-hmm. That's not this January. No. People no. don't have Drek to slough off. They're actually... Just doing business as usual and releasing interesting independents and exciting uh, genre films. And it's not like we're not in the middle of the typical studio like life cycle. Yeah. Uh, except for The Marksman. Uh, <laughs> oh, good which, which I'm going to get to right now. Okay. Um, the, the Marksman is taken part. Uh, I think we're up to part 12 now. Uh, that is uh, Liam Neeson plays a, a grizzled old loner who does a lot of murder stuff. <laughs> Look, if I had a shtick, <laughs> I'd do the shtick. He's de- he's definitely has been repeating this same shtick uh, since Taken, which came out in, what was that, 2009 that movie Some, came out? We don't really do this kind of thing. Maybe we should, but someone should do a podcast that just ranks all the grizzled loner badasses Liam Neeson mm. is playing. And I haven't even seen them all, because I never yeah. saw a Walk Among the Tombstones. I think oh, that's that, awful. That, that one's that one movie, of the, the Taken knockoffs. unpleasant. It's not, it's not really it's not stuff more like, film noir, but like it's not good. Non-stop, unknown. Uh, you could fit the gray in there if you want to. Oh, the gray's to. definitely uh, a part of it. It's one of the better ones. Yeah. But uh, You didn't see non-stop, the one on a plane? I, no, I, I saw non-stop. Oh, okay, there you yeah. go. Because that's the one where I would, that's one disappointed me because I kept expecting uh, like Liam Neeson to punch the plane. Like the the plane is alive. Like I just wanted him to take fight the plane. Like I was I don't know why <laughs> fight the plane. It sounds like it takes place absurd... on a plane. I know I don't know why I somehow like I had got this in my head and because the movie didn't give me this incredibly stupid yeah. thing. I wanted, um, I was, I, it's a really forgettable film, actually. I don't even remember who else was in that. I'm going to look up nonstop, just because I want right. to know if anyone else of note was in that, because I have no memory of anyway, it. The Marksman is... Julianne Moore was in that. 
That's right, she was. Julianne Moore was in that. I was going to say January Jones, but she was in Unknown. Lupita Nyong'o was in that. I, I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Hmm. Anson Mount from Star Trek Discovery was in that. Okay. Corey Hawkins was in that. That's got a really good cast. Michelle Dockery was in that. Scoot McNary was in that. Corey Stoll. Hmm. Holy shit. Probably better than we remember, even. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think uh, if it was, we might remember some yeah. of these people were in it. But an amazing cast, though. Holy shit. Anyway, uh, here's the here's the next one. Okay. The Marksman. This one was uh, written and directed by Robert Lawrence, who produces a lot of Clint Eastwood's movies. He's been nominated for a bunch of Oscars for stuff like Letters to Iwo Jima and Mystic River. And... Um, this is his first time as a uh, screenwriter, director. Uh, he previously directed Trouble with the Curve. A movie which is very functional. It yeah, gets it, you there. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets, it goes, it starts at the beginning, uh-huh. goes on for a while, mm-hmm. and it gets you to the end. Yeah, you, you Job just, done. Just need a scraper to get all the syrup off your body at the end. Uh, I love, what I love about that movie mm-hmm. is it's about literally the opposite of Moneyball. It's yeah, it's about everyone's playing money the, ball, but the, this guy just heard something about just, his yeah, curveball and knew it's wrong. I, I, I heard, I heard that ball come off the bat, and I just knew he was going to be great, or or awful. Even though all of your stats say he's going to be amazing, yeah, yeah, no, yeah it's I, the exact I, I, opposite I, of money ball. It's hilarious. That would make a good double feature of those two movies. Yeah, they would. But may I talk about the marksman? If uh, you must. Uh, okay, I have nothing to say about the marksman. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, the marksman is big old bowl of oatmeal. No flavor, but it'll fill you up. It's uh, I've seen enough of these kinds. Of, the The story is he's a grizzled loner who lives on the Texas border. Uh, there's a, a mom and a son who have to cross the the Me- uh, the border from Mexico into America on the run from evil Mexican drug cartel guys. Classy, yeah. A story you've seen a million times. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in CSI episodes for God's sake, and. Uh, the uh, the boy and the mom get separated. The boy comes under the wing of uh, rifle-toting old Brian Mills-type guy, Liam Neeson, who's in a hat and drives a truck. And has to protect them, protect this kid from the evil cartel guys because uh, he has something the cartel guys want. He has He's walking around with a suitcase full of money. It's a big MacGuffin. I've seen enough of these to know when uh, it's done sort of automatically and boringly, and when it's done with relative competence, and when it has a lot of personality. This one's done with relative competence. It knows okay. it knows how a screenplay is supposed to work. It knows when to have moments of uh, mild introspection. It knows when to slow down. It knows when to speed up. It knows when to show violence. It knows when not to show violence. And it has uh, a perfectly efficient feeling to it. I didn't hate it, and I was shocked. <laughs> at not how good it is at how not bad it is mm-hmm. which is a different thing no 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 we're talking about mm. absolute unbridled mm. holy shit competence yeah right like uh, unbelievably up the middle <laughs> like, mediocre i believe was the word you're looking media for. yeah like s- staggeringly mediocre baseline mm. filmmaking and uh you know what that's fine that's the definition that's of fine. Fu- that's fine. Five out of ten in January, uh, you know, for Taken 12, I'll take it. <laughs> it's one of those movies that you can just sort of, like, get up and, you know, 
go get some snacks without turning the movie off and not miss a whole lot. Hey, Dad, you want to watch Psycho Goreman? <laughs> no. All right. All right. You want to watch, watch the movie where Liam Neeson kicks ass? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which one? Yeah. Doesn't matter. The, the new one. <laughs> the latest one. Yeah. Episode 15. Yeah. Um... Okay. I, I I kind of hope that Liam Neeson has the wherewithal to have a Liam Neeson shared universe where he plays all 12 characters from these movies. Yeah, he's uh he said he's actually putting the shit behind him. If if this he's is going to he's if, like he's he's wrapping up his like ass kicking old man phase and honestly you can keep going. I don't mind. <laughs> You're one of like the few people who can get away with it. Like, he's capable of so much more, but you know he's pushing seventy now, so he he, he can he can put it behind him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Before uh, he does Taken Four, uh, I still want him to do he the best movie Liam Neeson ever made that wasn't like you know Schindler's List or one of his classy movies uh, is the fake movie he made for um, Daddy's Home Two. Oh, and I never saw either of the Daddy's Home movies. There's, there's a movie, there's a bit in the movie uh, Daddy's Home t- uh, 2, which is a very bad film. Where it's Christmas, and there's like a snowstorm, and everyone decides to go to the movies. So hmm. they're on Christmas Day, and everyone's at a film, and at some point, someone decides to go in to see the latest Liam Neeson movie. And Liam Neeson actually recorded, we don't see him on screen, but he recorded audio uh-huh. for a scene that goes something like this. Two kids yelling, Liam Neeson, you killed Santa Claus! And Liam Neeson, like, says, no children. We killed him for America. And I'm just like, yes! I want to know what the fuck this movie is. This sounds great. Um, yeah, this this, this yeah. is, uh, li- like all of those other movies, this is just politically irresponsible. It's about the, the brave, yeah. lone, white gunman who's fighting off, like, evil Mexicans sneaking over the border. It's not as offensive as Rambo Bla- Last Blood. Few things are. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that that's sort of floating through it that, you know, it's up to these take-charge gun owners mm-hmm. rather than the government to take care of things. I want Liam Neeson to play Leslie Nielsen in a movie. It's been announced that he might star in the reboot of The Naked Gun. They were gonna, no, really? Yeah, they were going to do a, another oh Police God. Squad movie, but with uh, Liam Neeson they, in the Frank Drebin role. Okay, do, please do that. <laughs> maybe that's maybe maybe it's somewhere online I had heard that mm-hmm. and it got incepted or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, please do that. That sounds that's really that. funny. Let's do that. <laughs> and, I, and I think Seth MacFarlane was going to direct because they worked, they've worked together in a couple movies before. Fair enough. Um Great, let's do it. Yeah, I must have heard that somewhere in the back of my okay. mind. That, there's no way I'm that smart. Um, <laughs> all right, and, well, and, if, and if anybody can pull off that kind of, t- I actually think Seth MacFarlane could do something like that. Oh, but I'm, Seth I'm not so do down on Seth MacFarlane. No, he's, he's, ca- he's capable of he, good things. He, he can just be doesn't funny. do it all the time. He can be funny. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Um, I let's talk about uh, what we're talking about. These kinds of popcorn films. Let's talk about Pixar popcorn. Speaking of popcorn, uh, Pixar popcorn. popcorn is actually it's it's one of those things where this is normally something we would cover on the show, but because of its unique distribution model, it's also the kind of thing that we might not. And we're dealing with this weird era where some things are, regardless of whether they would go to theaters or a streaming service or television, clearly movies. Mm. They fit the idea of what a movie is in a terms certain, of a certain running time, structure, yeah, yeah, a certain running time, a certain structure. Um, but then we run into 
issues like uh, Small Axe, which we both mm-hmm. declared the best cinematic achievement of last year, even though it's five movies, and some people have argued, and even Steve McQueen himself intended it to be a television series. It's just five like anthology episodes uh, that just all happen to be feature length and totally self-sustaining and mm-hmm. really brilliant. At some point, the line got blurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latest uh, uh, effort from Pixar, coming right on the heels of Soul is a series of shorts. These are the kind of shorts that might normally appear like in front of the movies or maybe on the DVD release. If you recall, um, uh, like when the Incredibles came out, like on the DVD, there was a short about like what happened to Jack Jack's babysitter. Like while we (laughs) weren't looking at him and she was having this horrible night when Jack Jack's powers came out, Um, that kind of thing. Um, so ordinarily we would review those because they'd be right in front of a feature and they are standalone shorts. Mm. Uh, Pixar has released, uh, 10 of them at the same time and in a very bingeable way on Disney plus. And they all feature pre-existing characters from the Pixar canon. Uh, and, uh, they're all really short. Like the longest one is four minutes long. Oh, oh, okay. The average length is probably about a minute to two minutes. They're so like, really bite-sized. It's so like the, the Mater's Tall Tales yeah. series of Cars films. Yeah, they're really, 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 really thin. So um, I'm going to walk you through these, and I'm going to tell you right now, almost all of them stink. Oh, no! They're all, they're all <laughs> at best, mm. complete... I think calling them popcorn probably is is pretty fair, because if you've ever had popcorn, and I'm pretty sure you have... You know that, like, one piece of popcorn is nothing. Look, a whole bag of popcorn is nothing. It's, yeah. it's culinary packing material. That's exactly my point. Like, but mm. one piece is, is nothing. So every one of these stories, like, two of these that are actually pretty good. And the rest of them are just one piece of popcorn. And you go, mm. okay. It could use anything. Like, mm. some substance. I don't know. Um, the first one's called To Fitness and Beyond. Uh, and... The vast majority of these shorts do not feature any dialogue. And it doesn't feel like because they've got this really great, like, silent comedy kind of routine worked out. It It feels feels like like, they couldn't get actors. It feels like they couldn't get the actors. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. (laughs) Tim Allen wanted too much money to play Buzz Lightyear again. I I wonder if they just realized they shouldn't even bother. So this is a one-minute short of uh, Buzz Lightyear turning on, like, a tape deck in the toy room and trying to get everyone in the toy room to like do a fitness regime and they're not interested. And so he stops. And then at the end they decide to do fitness anyway. There is no narrative. There is no subversion. There's no big reveal. There's no joke. Mm-hmm. It's like Buzz is doing aerobics for, for about 30 seconds. And mm-hmm. then everyone does some exercising. It's nothing. There's more drama in a mighty Mr. Titan cartoon. <laughs> Let me explain what Mighty Mr. Titan is. <laughs> Mighty Mr. Titan is... Take, po- take us there, Jerry Beck. Ma- Ma- right. Ma- thank you. Jerry Beck is a, a cartoon historian. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Mm. and uh, He's written books. He's, he's What's his website? Of, cartoon Brew? Is that car- it? Cartoon Brew. Yeah. yeah, check him out. It's wonderful. He, he was hosting a lot of shows uh, back when repertory houses were welcoming this sort of thing. Uh, nights where he would show you the worst cartoons he's ever seen. Yeah, and this was a regular uh, event at mm-hmm. Comic-Con for many years. Um, and uh, he would, and, and when we say the worst cartoons ever, I don't mean the shit you're thinking of. 
we're thinking of like the stuff that we know about. Hey, oh, they showed an episode of that one Pac-Man cartoon. Remember when they made Pac-Man a cartoon? That was too good for this show. Yeah, that that Pac-Man cartoon is is awful. Yeah, Mighty Mister Titan, however, yeah, made regular make regular appearances at this uh, worst cartoons of all time. Mighty Mister Titan was a propaganda cartoon created by I believe the U.S. government, I think the military, mm-hmm. and the whole idea it was during is, the Hoover administration or. Uh, Dude, Hoover was like the twenties. Oh, sorry, not Hoover. Um, yeah, <laughs> what are you thinking of the the Eisenhower um, administration, something like that? No, it was like probably, 50s. it was the fifties. Yeah, uh, and the whole thing is these were shorts, like four minutes long, and there was a guy who was mighty Mister Titan, mm. and he would look at the screen and go, "Okay, kids, if you want to join the military and help protect your country, you're going to need to do some calisthenics today." And then he'd show you how to do calisthenics, and then he'd show you how to do calisthenics in a silhouette. Mm. That's the show, and, and there and was and more animated, drama. So it's not like a person is actually doing yeah. this; it's just this cartoon figure. Bending in really implausible ways. Yeah. Uh, if he was animated at all, like his lips would sort of shimmer oh, yeah. a little it's bit, but he wouldn't thing actually ever. talk. Yeah. It's the cheapest thing ever. And 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 again, there's more drama because it implies that if you don't do your exercises, like we'll lose the Cold War. <laughs> like that had more drama than that. The next one is called Unparalleled Parking. Uh, this is the Cars episode. No, there's two cars. There's two cars right. shorts. This one is uh, the police car in uh, Radiator Springs. Uh, is checking to make sure all of the cars know how to parallel park, and they all parallel park in kind of funny ways. And once again, we run into the uh, really, really, really annoying fact that the Cars universe makes no sense. (laughs) It should not be difficult for them to parallel park their cars. What makes it difficult to parallel park is that you're a person in a car, and you don't necessarily know your space cushion, nor is it easy to know everything around you because you have blind spots. Mm. So the issue with parallel parking is the person in the car, not the car itself. They would not have any problems. (laughs) This makes no fucking sense. And so we're just watching cars parallel park kind of for a minute. Mm. The next one is called Dory Finding, which is basically Dory from Finding Dory and Finding Nemo, uh, finding a bunch of stuff, like, at the bottom of the ocean. She, like, finds, like, a pair of, like, reading glasses and starts looking at things, and they're all kind of big. Okay. Moving on. That's it. That's the whole uh, thing. She just Dory finds, and finds stuff. It's like, it's like, it's like if uh, The Little Mermaid was all about how, like, Ariel found, like, a thingamabob. She got 20. Like, that's it. That's, that's the whole thing. It's kind of cute because it's Dory and we all like Dory, but it also is one of those ones where clearly she should be talking. Mm. Like there's no, this is clearly the kind of thing where Dory would be because we've seen her in the movies. She, she does talk when no one else is around. It's weird that she's not. And the sight gags aren't funny enough to carry it on their own. Mm. Then there's soul of the city, which is a short connected to the most recent movie soul. Oh, all right. Uh, this one feels like outtakes. Oh, no. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, if you saw the movie Soul and you know it's about uh, uh, a jazz musician who never got his big break and he dies and he tries to find his way uh, back to Earth again into his body so that he can get his big break and find feel like he really lived his life. Uh, and ultimately the movie is mostly about learning to appreciate the little things. So uh, the idea behind this short is uh, we see some of the ancillary characters, supporting characters, mm-hmm. side characters, people on the street even. From all, the movie. all the human characters. All the human yeah, characters. Yeah. We don't see any of the souls except, you know, they're right. in their body, but you know what I mean. Um, and um, and they're all just like, 
going about their business for a minute. Like, hmm. the guy who was, like, playing a guitar in the subway, like, puts away his guitar. Mom is um, in the kitchen. Well, given that the movie was about learning to appreciate the small moments in life, uh-huh. maybe this was the small moments? You would, no, no, it's clear that that's how it's intended. Okay. Problem is, is that outside of the context of the rest of the movie, you would have to have this movie fresh in your head in order to get anything out of this. Oh. This feels like a teaser trailer. Okay. This feels like like just like bits and bobs where like we thought we'd need this moment in the movie and it turns out we didn't. Uh-huh. So we just threw it together in a montage and thought we could get away with it. Um, and it just ultimately doesn't feel pure and soulful. It actually feels pretty cynical and kind of thrown together. Uh, the next one is called Fluffy Stuff with Ducky and Bunny. Um, Yay, Ducky and Bunny. Ducky and Bunny are the I... two best characters in Toy Story 4. I, I love Toy Story 4. I know I'm in a minority there. No, you're I'm not. Really... Most people love it. I'm, yeah. You're in a minority in this apartment because I hate oh, it. Oh, okay. Uh, but oh, I do I think... Toy Story 4. I, I, think, I think Ducky and Bunny are great characters. Uh, they're played by Key and Peele uh, in the movie. And, um, you know, I was complaining about how the other ones had... Uh, didn't have any dialogue and it felt weird that they didn't have dialogue. Mm. This one feels like they caught Key and Peele just riffing for 60 seconds in the booth and decided to animate Ducky and Bunny looking at each other and talking. Um, that's that's a way to do it. I've, you would, I've seen it, that done with animation before. It, it could work mm. if it was funny. Mm. Moving on. This is actually one of the good ones. Uh, it's called Chore Day, The Incredibles Way. Uh, and this is just a slice of life little short where all of the Incredibles are doing household chores, but they're using their powers. Cute. That's, that's it. That's the, and that's the shtick with the Incredibles. It's, it's a series of sight gags mm-hmm. that make perfect sense for the characters. They're all in character. The Incredibles, even though they're human characters, are all very um, sort of archly realized. They're, they're, some of them are literally elastic, but you know, they're, they're, they look like cartoons. Mm. And that really helps when you don't have a lot of time and real estate and when all you're doing is setting up a joke. Uh, the ultra realism of the animation of something like Soul doesn't really, I mean, that wasn't a joke, but like you don't have a lot of real estate. So the ultra realism isn't necessarily helping mm. you in animation. Here, the the broadness of the characters and the situation actually really, really works. And that's also true for A Day in the Life of the Dead. Uh, which is just sort of slice of life stuff in the world of uh, the mm. dead and Coco, uh, which there's a bunch of really cute stuff of like skeletons riding bicycles or a skeleton trying to answer the phone, but his jaw keeps falling off. It's mildly amusing. Mm. It works fine. Uh, then there's another fluffy stuff with Ducky and Bunny where they're basically just making fun of that one sheep toy with three heads. Okay. Yeah. For about 60 seconds and they're mean to it and then it's over. It's not funny. Um, then there's one called Dancing with the Cars. And this one, the cars from Cars dance a little. So this is all like B-roll. This feels like B-roll. This feels like stuff that, for the most part, stuff that doesn't work. The only mm. one that actually completely works, and I, again, the, the Incredibles one was fine. Mm. The Coco one was fine. They're, they're cute. They made me laugh a couple of times. There's not much to them, but they barely feel like a short. Mm. The last one feels like a short, and it's actually a pretty good short. It's called Cookie Num Num, and it is about late in the night in the Incredibles household. There's one cookie left, mom is asleep, and everyone else is trying to get that cookie without waking her up. So the fact that they're not talking is actually written into the story. Because they have to stay quiet, okay. It makes perfect sense, and now we actually have a premise... 
which most of these don't have. Mm. We have conflict, which most of them don't have. We have a series of really broadly realized characters who all approach a problem from a different angle because of who they are and what abilities that they have. And there's a funny conclusion. Mm. That's a good short. Could okay. the other ones have been good shorts, please? <laughs> Would that I've, have killed anybody? I've, I've um, I've, I've, feel so com- I've complained about this a lot. Uh, as as from Brave onward, I've noticed that uh, rather than Pixar influencing Disney, which has happened a little bit, like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of sort of Pixar wit in something like Wreck It Ralph. Pick, Wreck It Ralph uh, feels like a Pixar movie. Yeah. I feel like the Disney influence has leaked into Pixar rather than the other way around. And so we now have several films from the Pixar canon that seem a lot less creative than some of their early stuff. Things that seem a lot less striking and a lot less witty. Oh, sure, there's still Inside Out and, you know, other great films that are coming along, but... I mean, the Good Dinosaur was doesn't seem like something they would have done early on. No, the Good Dinosaur feels more like a Disney movie. Yeah, it's, and I f- Brave feels like a Disney movie, and now it seems like if you look at a lot of Disney shorts, they're they're approachable, they're watchable, but they're not like funny or moving. Yeah, here's the, and here's, this is Pixar doing that sh- in shorts form. Here's now. what here's what these shorts feel like. Is you look at most of the Pixar shorts that we get in front of movies, and they tend to be occasionally they relate to one of the movies, but usually. They're a very strikingly animated or intriguingly conceptualized experiment mm. or showcase for one of the animators at their studio. Um, many of them are quite good. I, I can only think of like a handful that aren't amazing, and I'm not even going to bother calling them out. But they don't feel like a cynical cash-in, and these do. Mm. These feel like we decided to just make some stuff in order to exploit these brands. Yeah, and... It might have been, and I hope that this is the case because this is the good justification for it. This might have been a useful excuse to let some people in the company just play. Practice, do an, do an experiment, do an animation, try some things out. Maybe they That might have been nice. Maybe they had a lot of these in the can. Like this was yeah. just like, here's your animation exercise just to yeah. but show me what you got. Buzz Lightyear is doing jazzercise. Go. like that, yeah. And that's fine, but it's not necessarily enough for... An audience. And this is just popcorn in the worst way. This is just bland, unsalted popcorn. Uh, if you must see them, and like you feel like, oh, I really want to see these shorts, uh, Cookie Num Num is quite good. You can just watch that. Uh, Chore Day, The Incredibles Way, and A Day in the Life of the Dead are the winners. The rest of them are, you know, they're short, so like you're not going to feel like you wasted your time or anything like that, but you're also not going to really get a lot out of them, mm-hmm. I think. Shame because Pixar is usually a bit better than that. Moving on, uh, tell me about something else. What do you want to talk about? Um, let me talk about Nocturno. Okay, um, because that one is uh, there's there's no real way to uh, uh, segue into this one because Nocturno is uh, a, this one goes back to um, the the uh, Mexican film you were talking about uh, identifying features. identifying features. Yeah. Uh, in that, this is a documentary film. It's uh, made by an Italian director named Gianfranco Rossi, uh, who went to the Middle East uh, and filmed for three years in Syria, in Iraq, in Kurdistan, and in Lebanon. And uh, it starts with an opening Chiron saying that since the First World War and uh, all of the political shenanigans that happened right after that war led to the redrawing of, of a lot of borders and pretty much just set up the entire era, the, the entire area 
for constant influx of uh, you know civil wars and despots and foreign interference just sort of keep the place eternally un- unstable. And what the director does is find a few people give no narration, give no chirons as to who they are, or even what country we're in necessarily, mm-hmm. and try to show what everyday life is like in this incredibly unstable region. And in uh, in the opening sequence, we see a, a lot of old women gathering in a disused prison where uh, some of their sons had died. And they're talking about how you know, living in that space makes them feel closer to their sons. We get to see two people on a date and they're just sort of, uh, they're smoking hookah and talking about how lovely the sky is and you can hear machine gun fire in the background. We see a guy who has a horse and he delivers stuff and he leaves the horse out in the street while there's machine gun fire and cars going by. Mm -hmm. It's all very calm. There's not a lot of uh, real diegetic uh, dialogue. Uh, But then we get to see a little bit more directly uh, sort of the toll this is taking on people. We get to visit an elementary school classroom and each one of those kids has a horror story about how ISIS killed their families in front of them. And they're encouraged to talk about it with the teachers just so they can work through the things they've seen and put it into context, like draw pictures of what happened. And it's horrifying what happened to these poor children. And in the film's most harrowing sequence, we uh, meet an old woman who's just at home on her phone getting a phone call from her daughter who has been kidnapped by ISIS and is demanding ransom In, in real time. This is on camera. Oh, my God. That means it's common enough for this guy to just sort of capture it on camera. Yeah. And it's sort of how uh, there's not going back to normal in this region. Yeah. It's about how normal life is a lot different yeah. <laughs> as, as, in, as we would picture it here in, in, in the United States. And, how, uh, and they do talk about how America came in and just when they came in, they just disrupted everything and just kept yeah. the cycle going. None of this has helped. No, nothing has brought any kind of stability to the region. Yeah. People are just have just learned to kind of, with this weary resignation, accept all of this violence that they're living among. Well, maybe, again, yeah. I haven't seen it, but yeah. I, know, I wonder if accept is the right word. Because the thing yeah. that I'm fascinated by, and that makes you really want to see this yeah. movie, uh, is we're living through some pretty wild times right now all over the world. Yeah. And... As harrowing as it is for a lot of people and people who have lost family members and, uh, again, wars are still raging, violence is still uh, uh, coursing through the veins of society, uh, we also still have to take out the garbage sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing that I'm just endlessly fascinated by is that there are these moments where in all, amidst all this drama, all this, this stuff you mentioned when you talked about adaptation... Robert Mm. McKee talking about how everyone in their lives has big dramatic moments. And those are the moments that we tend to put on film. Even if you have the biggest dramatic moments in the world, you also have to just buy a cup of coffee sometimes. You You have to go about your day. You have to get groceries. You have to do chores. You 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 don't get to not do that. There's a great movie. uh, Well, I I remember it being great, but I actually haven't seen it since shortly after it came out called The Opposite of Sex. You remember that movie with Christine Ricci? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm wondering how you're going to bring this around to Nocturno. Well, there's there's a scene in that movie where uh, Christina Ricci has broken up this couple. Um, Mm. She's like this femme kind of character. And 
Um, and there's and she's also this very comical uh, voiceover narration, and she shows this guy who has been left, um, you know, sad and like smelling the shirts of his ex boyfriend and you know eating alone, and she's just like, you feel really bad for him, right? That's because I picked these moments in the montage to show you. Now let me show you some of the other stuff he had to do. That while in the midst of all this stuff, he did his taxes. <laughs> He's just living his life. Yeah, he decided what new cereal to mm. buy. Like he still has to go about his shit. Mm. And that's something that I think movies would do better yeah. if he were trying to create an actual sense of what life is like and not what drama is like. Yeah, yeah. Leaving those moments in, whether it's a documentary or a fictional narrative, is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And and uh, I, I appreciate that there isn't a lot of context, that we're just sort of seeing these people going about their daily lives. And because we know where it's taking place just from that opening Chiron, then everything sort of makes sense. And uh, the way they go about their daily lives and the way they behave and the way they speak is all, has all been affected by mm. just a century of constant violence in this area. And uh, And the film is also, you know... It's not going to offer a solution. It's not going to say, oh, and but things are getting better or things are looking up or something's going to happen. No, just this is the way things are now. And uh, and that's very illuminating I'm so depressed. For, uh, <laughs> for people who don't want to think about that a I, lot. I am depressed. This is forcing you to think it. about it. No, it's true. And, uh, that, it's, and that's something, yeah. that's something I, yeah, I do think about. Yeah. And it's depressing then, too. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like the movie is really illuminating and... Um, well, mm-hmm. it sounds really good. It, it is. It's quite good. Uh, you saw quite a few more films than I did, so why don't you okay. take the next one, too? Okay. Um, how about I do another documentary? Um, right. uh, Andy Timoner did another documentary. You know Andy Timoner works. She directed uh, We Live in Public. Mm-hmm. Really uh, fascinating Which is a documentary. really good documentary. She also did a, a music film called Dig. Mm. Uh, and now she's doing a film about the opioid crisis in America. And she chooses... Uh, three cities, uh, Salt Lake City, Denver, and the third one I forgot, uh, (laughs) uh, to examine uh, just the people who have become addicted to opioids, what their lives are like, and some of the politicians who are trying to pass legislation to take care of it. And uh, a lot of everybody in all of their stories is trying to address the horrible stigma about addiction. This is the movie oh. Coming Clean, by the way. You haven't said the title yet. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. This, is com- okay. this is Coming Clean is the title of this film. Okay. Uh, which is confusing because there's like five or six different films called Coming Clean. Uh, yeah. This is Andy Tumoter's documentary, Coming Clean. It is about the opioid, opioid crisis. Uh, and, yeah, the, the theme of the film is how addiction, especially in the United States, tends to be seen as some sort of uh, legal and moral failing on the part of the addict. If you are, if you are an addict that some, you have just made all the wrong decisions and you deserve the misery that that comes to you. This is the kind of garbage that's come leaking down from propaganda films like the cocaine fiends and reefer madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you took those drugs, it's all your fault and yeah. you don't, de- you just you are, you are, punishment. You are, yeah, you are, you have morally mm-hmm. failed and yeah. ergo you are undeserving of sympathy uh, and charity and, 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 and understanding and hence, and hence Treatment. That's the yeah. important thing. And uh, yeah. there's a lot of... It's an excuse for society to write people off mm. who might be complicated to, to help. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and they actually delve into a lot of the psychology of addiction. What drives people to become addicts? Sometimes it uh, stems very directly from uh, childhood trauma yeah. and, uh, and abuse that they suffered at the hands of other people. 
they they even talked about how you know people like abuse victims uh, child victims of childhood abuse are I think like three hundred times more likely, or <sighs> like many many more times yeah. likely to become addicted to substances later in their lives. They mm-hmm. also talk about how uh, Pfizer and uh, all of these uh, big com- chemical companies are responsible for this because they were actually deliberately pushing. Uh, different kinds of diagnoses to doctors so that they could be uh, patients could be described opioids more readily. They compared uh, modern day opiates like uh, OxyContin to uh, old medical journals where like heroin and cocaine were sold as just regular medicine. Yeah, like straight up heroin injected. Oh, yeah. yeah, you they would just give that to you over the counter. You'd inject yeah. it, and that would take care of anything. Yeah. As it would, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know what? There will be a marked change in how you feel. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It'll change not, the way you feel. That's for sure. This is not sure. a placebo. Um, we can say that much. And yeah, how these things don't are. Don't do drugs. It, no. Well, don't do these drugs. So there, And uh, you can tell that uh, Andy Timoner made this uh, before covid hit Mm -hmm. because they're first of all it's all about this legislation they're talking about well if we can uh get another president and if we can elect you know uh, uh, these right people in the senate then we can start getting this legislation passed those things have happened already uh and then there's a little coda at the end where there andy timona revisited some of the top the subjects uh after COVID had already hit and mm-hmm. they talked about how being indoors and being separate and not having that sort of support network of going to addiction groups and going to treatment has actually caused this horrendous relapse in a lot of uh, addiction legislation and in just addictions in general. And they, they uh. call, called up some uh, new statistic um, that uh, addiction and relapses have gone way up over the course of COVID. This is another one of the, uh, the consequences of lockdown. Uh, it's educational. It's good to see it in action. I feel like it could have been a lot more comprehensive, though. Uh, the opioid addiction uh, is a big problem in this country, sure. but there's also a racial element to it that isn't touched upon in this movie. At all? Uh, no. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's like one of... Somebody brings it up once, but they don't actually explore it. How, um, if you compare the way a lot of politicians talk about the op- opioid crisis... Versus the way they talk about the crack cocaine crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is... Oh, these uh, poor people. Yeah, one is, oh, these poor people, we have to help all of these people. And one is, those are all criminals, we need to put them in jail. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. One affects white communities and one affects black communities. Uh, more, so. more More so. Yeah. No, more so. Anybody can become addicted to anything, but... Uh, uh, and so, also, uh, and also, this, it's also stereotyping as well. Absolutely, yeah, yes. Yeah. And I, I wish they had talked about sort of that that uh, social aspect and that racial aspect uh, in terms of the way we have wielded this idiotic war on drugs to push uh, racist mandates. That's not part of, of the narrative. In, in Does it feel pain. incomplete? To me, it did. Yeah. Uh, but it is also about uh, specific people, and it actually is putting a, a face to addiction and having a lot of uh, really frank talk about addiction that I think a lot of people who still have a lot of misconceptions about what opioids are and uh, how addictive they are and what the actual effect is might not know yet. So it's it's functional and it's well put together, but I wish there were more of it. Uh, Let's let's stick Mm. on the documentary kick. Mm. Uh, You you saw one more documentary, right? MLK FBI? Uh, I did indeed. You do that one and then I'll talk about the documentary I saw. Uh, 
MLK and, and uh, to continue on that same tack, MLK FBI is it's a classroom film. Okay. Uh, this is about very informative. It's it's all very informative, and you might know a lot of this stuff already if you know about the history of Martin Luther King and his relationship with the FBI, uh, specifically um, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover targeted Martin Luther King. They called him a dangerous guy. They thought he was a rabble rouser. And uh, as it turns out, because they were following him so closely and tapping his phones a lot, they actually uncovered uh, some affairs that he was having. And that this is about – this film is very much about, um, at the end of the day, reconciling the greatness of the person versus the, their fail, maybe failings, personal failings as, as a, a human being. Yeah, everyone has They're flaws, human no matter, how, teams, no matter yeah. what they accomplish and how good it might be. Everyone, mm. Everyone's imperfect. And, and yeah. yeah, so it is about that Some, some of, more so than others. But the the yeah. interplay of how the FBI had, was pressuring Martin Luther King during you know the most important part of his career uh, as a civil rights leader and their insistence on selling the FBI uh, as they were depicted in media as these sort of like hero guys who were going yeah. in and taking care of, of the riffraff. And because it was such a racist institution, they were specifically targeting Martin Luther King because they saw him as dangerous. Yeah, he he was upsetting uh, the status slash the, the, the quo. white status quo. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually wanted change for the better, and that was very yeah. threatening. And he wasn't as like people like to talk about how you know he was peaceful. He was, but he was also very confrontational about it, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be seen. He wasn't just gonna like you know. Again, you look at the protests that we had this last year. They're not. If you can miss them, if you can ignore them, they're not doing their job, are they? You're not going to get anything done. And that was something that MLK was all about. And yeah, the FBI in a very racist, conservative nation would did not take to that well, and they were dicks. Uh, Like I said, I I knew all of this stuff going in. Yeah, like I I had I knew about the history of the FBI, been reading about Martin Luther King since I was in grade school. Uh, so the, I, I had a lot of the details in my head already. And even the fact that he, it was revealed that he had had, had affairs and that the FBI had tapes of it, evidently. And, and functionally were tried going to blackmail to, him, didn't they? They, they, were try, they actually tried to get him to commit, commit suicide. What? They, they, okay. sent, they sent like letters to his house saying, we have all the tapes. You know what you need to do. That was the actual phrase in the Oh, well, I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, so Coretta Scott King was you know, involved in all of this. Yeah. And uh, the tapes do exist, and they're going to be unsealed in 2027. Wow. They said at the end, end, of, uh, at the end of the movie. There was one mention of um, Martin Luther King's photographer. And in fact, he was a very uh, – let me look up the name of this guy. Um, he was a photographer for uh, just a lot of important civil rights uh, milestones. He yeah. was there to take pictures of Martin Luther King and other other things going on at the time. And as it turns out, he was for many years an informant for the FBI. Oh, wow. I want that guy's movie. <laughs> that, guy's, that sounds like an interesting yeah. story. Um I, is, but is, the information is good, though, right? Because that's the, the thing. The information people, is good, but yeah. I, I described it as a classroom film. This is right. for something for uh, like hi, high, high school students well, who might necessarily not know a lot of this stuff. Anyone who doesn't yet. know yet. And the sad mm-hmm. thing is that um, you know education is not uniformly great across this country. Um, and it's also the sort of thing where the further we get from events, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the more likely it is that information about those events, the people who did not live through them, might be a generation or two removed, starts becoming a little vague and then might start becoming inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So the existence of a movie that might seem a little rudimentary to people who lived through it or the immediate aftermath or, you know, had a particular education that covered it, um, you know, it's clearly not for them. Mm. And we need films for classrooms that are compelling and interesting uh, that make sure people understand more context and history. Yeah. Because just knowing the gist... Uh, is dangerous because if you know anything wrong, the whole thing turns into a, mm. you know, yeah. damn brush fire. Yeah, we, we we do get to see just sort of the we get to sort of walk through the thicket of all of this propaganda about this famous figure. And Martin Luther King was the one who emerged unscathed in all this. Mm-hmm. And J. Edgar Hoover, by and large, is not well remembered these days. <laughs> For things like Cointelpro Co- 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 or whatever it was called and, um, you know, other shady dealings that he was involved in. Uh, yeah, this is just a, a good little uh, good little encapsulation, a good little yeah. educational. It's more informative than it is gripping, and yeah. but there's a place for that. All right. Uh, well, the documentary that I saw, and it's one of those movies where I know some people take issue with whether or not it's a documentary. It's a filmed performance. Okay. The performance has been documented for posterity. Um, and it's a distinct performance. It's an interesting performance. Whether or not it's good is a more complicated conversation. Uh, it's called Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, A.K.A. In and of Itself, depending on uh, how you see it written out. Um, Derek Delgadio is a magician, a card shark, mm-hmm. uh, a storyteller, uh, basically doing... A one-man show that is also a magic act, that is also a card act, uh, that is also ostensibly this kind of, like, revelatory experience uh, wherein the audience has their ideas about themselves and their identities challenged over the course of the performance while he's doing all this other stuff. Very ambitious. Hmm. Uh, Delgadio is... Uh, very interesting sort of stage presence. Um, he always looks like, he always looks really nervous, but like in this way that like, not like, not like neurotic, but like he knows that like the mafia has put a hit on him and like this might be his last minute, so he can't really like enjoy it, but he has to tell you his story. Like it's that kind of weird intensity to it. Um, And he's telling a variety of stories about um, identity and chance and his life growing up and discovering, um, you know, things about his mom that he didn't know and learning how to live with, um, the fact that he grew up without a father and, um, over the course of the movie, there are a variety of magic tricks, which are genuinely very impressive and that's cool. And I love magic. I like magic tricks. Yeah. Uh, the ambition of the show, however, is both its greatest strength and I think its greatest failing. Because Derek Delgadio isn't just interested in doing card tricks, and he does some amazing card tricks. He okay. isn't just interested in doing like stage magic, and he does some amazing stage magic. Not in like the showy David Copperfield kind of way, but in a you didn't even know I was doing a trick, and now this thing that you totally took for granted on the stage has transformed into a totally different thing right in front of you. That's very cool and impressive. Mm. Um, 
he's also doing a very particular kind of magic that I don't think people always think of as magic. And on some level, that's really subversive, but he never talks about it. He simply engages with it. He is engaging in the magic of live televangelism. And he's not doing it in a religious way. He's doing it in a sort of a self-help experience kind of way. So at the beginning of the event, and this is a live show that we've recorded, and they recorded a bunch of different versions of it, and there's a lot of audience interaction. So every time he does a bit, and he, they'll show him doing it with like 20 different people mm-hmm. um, because he did it differently every night. But although it was the same setup. At the beginning, there are a variety. There's a big wall. Mm-hmm. Of index cards. And every index card says, I am. Mm-hmm. And then there's a word underneath it. And the word, and you're supposed to pick one card at the beginning of the show and then hand the card into someone, and they will hand all of these cards to Derek Delgadio. And the things say stuff like, I am a traveler. I am a writer. Mm. I am a mystic. I am a brother. I'm a loser. All of these things. And he talks about how how we perceive ourselves and other people perceive us and how we can be changed by perception and our connection to other people. And it sounds really impressive until you realize over the course of the thing that what he is doing is the kind of shtick that you would see in televangelism where like all of a sudden I know everything there is to know about you. And the person there experiencing it is having a profound experience. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you were in the audience at the time when you're having this shared sort of ritualistic experience, you're going to have this incredible sort of like, wow, I was there and I saw the, even if I only just saw the impact it had on that person, that was powerful. Mm -hmm. Watching it at home (laughs) with that removed from that where there's a certain amount of objectivity to it because you're not there and you're not feeling the vibe in the room no matter how hard Frank Oz who directed the movie is trying to make you feel it all I can see is the manipulation yeah and you could say it's cynical and you can say it's very sincere I don't know what it's hard to actually say how whether Derek Delgatti was really trying to make sure you have a pure experience or whether he's trying to expose the way in which uh you know, stripping people down to one base identity purpose is actually an extremely effective tool to convince people to think what you want them to think or feel what you want them to feel. Well, I, I know a, there's a, a, a practice in magic, uh, mentalism, yeah, where you can kind of like look at somebody and you can make like little suggestions and in so doing, they can give you tells. Yeah. And uh, a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of magicians have uh, spoken out against mentalism. Like, they perform it, but then they say at the end, this isn't real. Or some of them do. Yeah. It's like, I'm psychic. No, I'm just manipulating you. And mm-hmm. uh, I know a lot of uh, magicians, uh, because they understand that everything is sort of a trick, mm-hmm. uh, like to debunk things that look like they might be supernatural. That's, yeah. that's uh, that was Houdini's shtick. It's yeah. Gillette's shtick. It's... It's a lot of magicians. It's like I'm shit. tricking you, so, yeah. and God, and, and the goal is to tr- is to trick you so well mm. that you respect me for doing it because you have no idea how I pulled it off. Yeah, yeah. But we're not pretending we're actually sorcerers. Mm. Uh, and that's the thing with Derek Delgadio is that there are bits where he's clearly doing a trick, mm. and then there are other bits where he clearly lets the magic of it play and never like reveals that he was doing a trick. And the bits that he lets play are these weird moments 
in which he's telling audience members all about themselves and you see them crying. And what's weird is that uh, apparently this, this is a big show. This show lasted a long time. Um, they got some shows with some celebrity guests. So at the end of the, the show, when he does a lot of audience work, keep your eyes open because you're going to notice like that Alicia Vitt. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Huh. Like, I think, I'm not sure, but I think Bill Gates was in one. Like, it was weird. Like, so that's just a little surreal, but that's nothing. That's just documentary Mm -hmm. weirdness. Um, I found myself absolutely pulled out of the spell he's trying to put his live audience under. And Mm -hmm. if I were in the live audience, I might have felt it. Ironically, Mm -hmm. I think documenting this for posterity hurt it. Oh. It's the kind of thing where it's like, God, you, you had to be there. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. Let me tell you about it. You should go tomorrow night. It's so cool. Seems like and the then, sort of thing that would play better if you have somebody talking about it and you see clips rather yeah. than just seeing the whole show. I filmed. suspect that might be the case because, like, yeah, that whole you had to be there kind of conversation might make you want to buy a ticket to the show. But if you instead you see the movie, instead you're just going to try and go, I guess you had to be there hmm. because it doesn't play there's some impressive stuff in it uh, he's clearly a captivating stage presence yeah some of the tricks are great some of the stories are cool but his use of basically cult-like um methods to mm. manipulate his audience is fascinating worth studying and also cynical and gross mm. and i ultimately found myself rejecting it and that's a shame because clearly a lot of work went into it. He's clearly very talented, but I felt ultimately like, yeah, it, he was giving the audience something, but as a movie, it doesn't give the audience at home the same thing. In fact, it might have the opposite impact. Mm. So uh, might have been a bit of miscalculation, but anyway, uh, let's. Uh, that's it for me for new releases. So right. why don't you uh, why don't you just walk us through whatever else you got? <laughs> just whatever else. I don't know. We got we got outside yeah. the wire. One night in Miami and the uh, one night in Miami is okay. uh, the new film from Regina King. She uh, directed it. It's uh, written by Kemp Powers, based on uh, their play, and it is about the uh, real event when uh, Malcolm X, in, uh, while in Miami, uh, gathered together Muhammad Ali, back when he was still Cassius Clay, uh, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke in a hotel. And talked about the cause, and that cause was uh, Islam, mostly. Mm -hmm. And how Muhammad Ali was trying to convince these people who were gigantic celebrity, uh, to to use a modern phrase, influencers uh, in the black community at the time. People listened to what they had to say, even if they were famous for music or something. Yeah, said something that was Sam Cooke is played by uh, Leslie Odom Jr., who is great. He's the best part of this movie. Uh, I'm uh, not surprised, but it's cool. Yeah. Um, Good cast, so. Uh, yeah, he's he's coming in from uh, from the world of music. Uh, Cassius Clay is, of course, the f- famous boxer and is the big blowhard. Jim Brown was right at that time when he was maybe going to give up on football and start doing acting. And indeed, by the end of the movie, we see a little epilogue where he says, I'm retiring, I'm going to do acting from Yeah, he did that. Uh, it was around the time he did The Dirty Dozen. Yeah. But he decided to skip out on, uh, on yeah. football. And then uh, Malcolm X is played by uh, Kingsley Ben Adir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Brown is played by Aldous Hodge, and Cassius mm-hmm. Clay is played by Eli Gorey. Yeah, I really wanted mm-hmm. to see this movie. I'm so mad yeah. I couldn't make the time. Part I will. Of the, and, I, just, and, I wasn't able to in time before the podcast. And of course, and this is a very relaxed movie. Uh, you can tell it's based on a play because it takes place mostly in a hotel room. 
unfortunately takes us 35 bloody minutes to get to the hotel room. Oh. I think the, the screenwriter just wanted to throw in a lot of extra stuff just to you know, lay down who these characters were. We know who these people are. They're famous historical figures. But uh, just to put everything in context, we spent a lot of time, uh, like, Jim Brown goes to visit a friend of his who's played by Bo Bridges. Oh, there's yeah. Bo Bridges in the movie for some reason. He mm-hmm. says something really shockingly racist right at the start. Uh, and, but the the pleasure is once they're in that, that hotel room, we get to see these great actors playing these famous figures just sort of shooting the shit. A lot of it is just conversation, and that's yeah. kind of exciting. It's incredibly laid back. Regina King is letting the actors just take it at their own pace. Uh, that means it's it's kind of frustratingly paced, mm. but I'm glad that the actors are allowed to just sort of allow the material to walk along with them. Uh, and by the end, we realize that it all, was all just sort of a selling point uh, by uh, Malcolm X to essentially get celebrity endorsements for the cause. He needed a famous face to, you know, show off that uh, his, his new branch of Islam was worthwhile and was actually going to be part of this larger movement. Yeah. People, Uh, you know, and respect mm. are into it. Ergo. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Like I said, the Sam cook stuff is my favorite stuff. Interesting. Uh, um, I like Leslie Odom jr. A lot. And and he gives, has a really wonderful speech about how, uh, even though he's producing a lot of music uh, by white artists, that's actually uh, he's taking in a lot of money from people and you know spreading uh, and helping out a lot of other black artists as a result, and how that is actually doing a lot more for the cause of uh, black people and civil rights at the time than perhaps you know dropping away from music and joining it in a pulpit of some kind. All right, right. so um, so it's good. Mm. It's 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 frustrating because it is good and those pleasures are there, but because it's so laid back, it starts to feel almost inconsequential after a time. There's oh. no gigantic crescendo where everybody starts yelling at each other, where you know tr- new truths come to light, or there's any kind of twist. They just sort of have a conversation, and then it turns out the way it well, turned that, out. I mean, there, there, there's a cinema like Jim Jarmusch has built his whole career mm-hmm. around that kind of cinema. Yeah, or and and Linklater as well, just yeah. sort of conversation is is a big part. Yeah, of Yeah, so it's not inherently Linklater's bad, made. but this one feels like it's missing something. It it feels like there needs to be a, a bigger confrontation. There needs yeah. to be something more dramatic, or uh, it needs to be much more intimate. Rather than trying to expand the material and mm. putting a lot of stuff on either side of this hotel room uh, scene, they should have just started in the hotel room. Yeah. Had a few more lines of dialogue. Well, I just came from here, and I just came from here. And oh, look, and there's Sam Cooke. He just and ne- showed up. Never, never pretend it was more than just people talking in a room. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, if it was just people talking in a room, it actually would have been a lot stronger. I feel like Regina King's uh, decision to expand the material kind of hurt the the smallness of the drama. Okay. All right, well, uh, let's move on. You got two more. You want to talk about Outside the Wire or The Dig? <laughs> oh, I'm going to talk about Outside the Wire. Do it. Live your dreams. You remember that film Training Day? Yes. Well, what if the Denzel Washington character was an evil military super robot? Go that's, on. That's outside the that's my pitch for the, the outside the wire. That is mm. an interesting pitch. Is the Ethan Hawke character like a naive young super robot? Uh, no, no. The, the the Ethan Hawke character is played by an actor named Damson Idris. Uh, okay. is he is this takes place in the near future. Uh, when 
all of Eastern Europe has been taken over by a character named, and I swear to God, his name is Victor Koval, and I swear I've heard that name in at least four other movies before, <laughs> about evil Russian warlords. Yeah. But an evil Russian warlord has taken over all of Eastern Europe in the near future. We're in constant state of war. Uh, there are robot soldiers, but they look like chappy. You know, they're, they're kind of mechanical looking. Yeah. Uh, the main character is a drone pilot who makes a bad call and gets some Marines killed, so he's taken off the job and put under the, forced under the wing of this grizzled, uh, old, old experienced kind of soldier, but it turns out he's only three years old and he's an evil super robot. And uh, like you do, and he's and he's well, played by and he's played by Anthony Mackie. That sounds uh, like something Albert Pune would have directed in the eighties. Yeah, 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 and and yeah. and the way it's introduced that he's a robot, it's like, yeah, no, hang on, he takes off his shirt, and we get to see like all the special effects where his yeah. skin goes all clear, and we see his robot spine and stuff. And it turns out, not only is he a super robot, but he's completely corrupt and doesn't care about human life and is just willing to do whatever he needs to do to get the job done, even if it means killing people or putting other people in danger. And, of course, he's part of this, like, network of corruption that's been going on in Eastern Europe at the time. Okay. Well, it's, I mean, again, we have a lot of... Mm-hmm. That's essentially a superhero story. You know, mm-hmm. people are larger than life, different abilities. Well, it's, a, well, it's, it's, and, it's a war story. Well, it's uh, a war it's story, more about, it's about soldiers than it is about the... His superpowers well, or his his abilities or his heroism. Well, that's kind of my point, is that if we have stories about people with larger-than-life abilities, mm. there's an interest in showing how other aspects of the world apply beyond costume superheroism. So, like, if people just have superpowers, some of them are going to be in the military. Some of them mm. are going to have different positions and be part of different worlds. And so... There could be interesting to see how, like, that kind of power could corrupt in a military environment. Mm. Is it interesting? Uh, no. Oh. It's not. It's actually pretty bland and predictable. How dare. Uh, it's it's pretty formulaic, and not just because I've seen Training Day. It just feels like there's not a lot of big twists. It's revealed pretty early on that Anthony Mackie is an evil super robot. Yeah. We get the gist of what's going on real fast, and there's not... Not any sort of reason to have set this in the future or to make Anthony Mackie a robot, other than a few little, like, plot machinations. It it doesn't lend itself to, you know, some kind of broader thematic thing about how war by technology is somehow draining soldiers of their humanity. Right. Maybe that was the comment. Maybe that using drones to commit combat is somehow putting people at too great a distance from the human cost of war. Uh if that's in there, you could interpret it that way, but it's not really made super explicit. It's more just a big action spectacular a la Albert Pune to, okay, to, well, to cite your, all your right, observation. Let's, let's, let's scale back our expectations a little bit. It was just a, a kind of a brainless action movie. Is the action good? It's okay. It's, it's okay. Know, not remarkable? Slick and good looking. You know, there's, there's not a, a huge amount of it, and... The bad guys are all just really cliched bad guys. Like, there's not like a lot of personality. Like a two and a half star movie. Yeah, like, it's, like it's not like, like uh, just like it's okay. Yeah, it, it's not like something like Psycho Gorman, which has you know a minuscule budget compared to something like this. But you know, each character has their own little story attached yeah, to that. Real ingenuity. This is just big faceless monsters that we have to shoot in combat scenarios. If you want, okay, let me ask you this: If anyone listening is in the market for generic action hmm. right now. What's their better bet? Outside the Wire or the Marksman? Uh, 
I guess it depends if if you like realistic crime action, go for the Marksman. If you like sci-fi action, go for Outside the Wire. They're both about two and a half stars. Okay, fair enough. Well, then tell me about the Dig. Oh, this is a hard left. Uh, the Dig. <laughs> Uh, in The Dig, Ray Fiennes plays an evil super robot. No, um, this is the true story of uh, the man who discovered uh, on a remote estate in England some ancient ships buried under the in the ground. Oh. When, when, uh, when is this? Like this, this, was, like... this was uh, right before the Blitz in, oh, okay. uh, in World War II. Okay. And there, uh, Carrie Mulligan plays uh the the lady of this estate who hires uh ray fines to uh, because he's well known as a digger to dig through these mounds that she suspects there's something underneath and indeed he finds some ships she suspects at first they might be viking ships but the actual archaeological uh significance of these ships was that they were anglo-saxon ships and we actually got to know a lot more about Anglo-Saxon technology and uh, and culture from this important find. There is uh, some debate as to how to look after these things because as soon as they discover these ships, the National British Museum gets uh, uh, gets ear of this and they start sending in a lot of really important archaeologist stuffy guys to come in and try to take control of the dig. And they say, we're going to take this back to the, the museums right away. But of course, England is about to be bombed. If they take things back to, or London is about to be bombed. If they take things back to the city, these things might get destroyed. So they're actually a lot safer just continuing to do the work right there on Kerry Mulligan's estate. Uh, it's totally pleasant. It's oh. very twee. It's very relaxing. Ooh. It's very, hey, grandma. I got BritBox. Let's watch something. <laughs> um, there's a little bit of romantic tension between Kerry Mulligan and Ray Fiennes, but not a lot because he's actually married and he brings his wife to to the dig a few times. Also, so they, he's they tr- staggeringly older than her. Uh, in, indeed, but yeah. you know, I've, I've seen far worse in terms I, of age, uh, I, age I disparity. Know, but I, a part of me is always mm. just like that's an uphill battle. You really have to convince mm. me that they're meant to be together, kind of thing. Otherwise, it just comes mm. across as kind of sleazy. But uh, in order to give the film a little bit more drama, Lily James appears as a young woman who uh, is assisting uh, the Ray Fiennes character. And she is an ambitious young archaeologist who is making a lot of discoveries on her own. And her marriage is sort of falling apart. And she uh, doesn't feel a lot of passion anymore. He's very technical. He's very dry. He's very British. (laughs) Uh, Luckily... um, Oh, what what was his name? Uh, the the dude from Emma. Which dude from um, Bill Nye? Uh, Johnny Flynn. Oh, the younger guy. The okay. younger guy. The right. the the music. The rock star. He appears as like a handsome young guy, and she and he start to have this sort of flirtatious relationship. And I feel like all of that was put in there just because they realized this wasn't a dramatic enough story. We needed a little more personal stakes. So let's let's add the, a little bit of romantic tension between these two younger characters. Okay. So this is a, this, this is, is a, this is a good this, one. Though. This is a good watch with okay. your parents kind of movie. Yeah. It's, it's not it's un- unthreatening. It's very relaxing. It's a good good true story about British archaeology. Uh, so you can feel like kind of educated by the end of it, but not really. And uh, at the end of the day, you'll just have tea and take a nap. Nice. The Dig is a movie to watch before a nap. That sounds nice. 
All right, so uh, it's time to do a review roundup. Uh, once again, for those who may be new or have forgotten, uh, we review movies at the end of the podcast on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. The lowest a movie can get, unless you're cats, is C-. minus. That is below average, and that's everything from the worst movie mm. ever made to just, eh, we don't recommend it. Most movies are a C. C is pretty average. C is like, eh, good as the marksman. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, C plus is above average, which is everything from we genuinely recommend it to literally the greatest movie ever made. Uh, and we like to do this because we have these long conversations and sometimes it's not always 100% clear where we stood on a film by the time we wrap things up. So before we get on to our streaming club movie, let's cover our bases. Whitney Seibold on the critically acclaimed scale. Where does the dig dig itself uh, yeah, this is going to be a boring one because these are mostly C's, but uh, yeah. it's it's a C. It's a, a pleasant movie. It's it's good. All right, outside mm. the wire. Outside the wire is a very low C, mm. high C minus. It's you know, mm. functional, but it's C. It's only C. Okay, outside uh, outside the wire. Mm. One night in Miami. One night in Miami. Also a C. At admirable, really good performances. Yeah. Wish there were more drama. Uh, Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself. Uh, this is one of those ones where, depending on your perspective, it could change. I'll say this. If you're really into magic, mm-hmm. like stage magic, and you really want to see someone like kind of playing with the conventions of that, this is a C, maybe even a C plus. But if you're looking at it as a stage show trying to accomplish more than that, um, I don't think it works as a film. If it works as a stage show, maybe. I don't know. As a film, I think it's actually doing itself a disservice. I give it a C minus. Mm-hmm. Uh, MLK FBI. Uh, also a C. A, okay. a lot of good information here. Um, definitely watch it. Okay, coming uh, coming clean. Hmm. Coming clean. Uh, ditto. <laughs> a lot, lot of lot of good information a- here. Average for a reason. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's C. I, I wish it was a little bit more exhaustive in in sort of its messaging. All right, we'll find a good one in here mm-hmm. somewhere. Uh, what about Nocturno? Nocturno is a C plus. I, I think this one's a, a really a good contemplation of uh, real life in a certain area of the world. Uh, Pixar Popcorn, a series of short mm-hmm. films from Pixar, which again you can look at it as a TV show or you can look at it as a series of shorts, which each short is worth reviewing. I'm not going to bother going through the whole list again. Suffice it to say, uh, the Incredible Shorts are pretty good. The Coco Short is pretty good. The last Incredible Short is the best of the bunch, and the rest of them don't work however Mm. they are so short that if you just really just want to revisit these characters a little bit eh. Mm. uh but i'm gonna give it a c minus overall Mm. individually it varies a little bit but only like one of them gets a c plus um let's see moving on the marksman the marksman is a c you define more more confidently the the definition of a c yeah uh identifying features i'm giving a c plus um, I don't know how well this is one going to stick with me, but I was really impressed by the way that this um, mystery uh, sort of evolved mm-hmm. and took me by surprise without getting like super complicated in its plot or anything like that. Just in terms of tone and um, how it took a very realistic story and it kind of transformed it into something even more potent than that. Okay. Um, and it was already plenty potent to begin with, so that's a C plus. Uh, Our friend, uh, our friend is is you know it's a C plus. Right. I was actually really moved by this one. I, re- I really like this film. Uh, and then uh, PG Psycho Goreman. 
C plus plus. <laughs> C plus. Definitely seek out Psycho Gorman. Absolutely uh, the movie I wanted to see right now. I'm not going to lie. It's I coming out on home video in March, even if you can't see it on streaming right now. Yeah. And I, I think it'll be on Shudder soon, but it's not on Shudder yet. Like, it's presented by Shudder, but it's not on Shudder right now. Like, mm. Shudder's, like, in the credits, so presumably it'll be on there eventually. But, um, yeah, this this is good. If, if you like anarchic horror comedy... Uh, bloody mess hmm. cult films uh you're gonna have such a treat and i think it's totally worth the money so by all means check it out that's definitely my first unequivocal recommendation of the year all right moving on to the critically acclaimed streaming club once again uh every week we try to focus not just on the new releases but also on at least one film that either whitney or myself or both of us have not seen yet hmm. And as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, uh, which was so long ago, we don't blame you if you did something else in the middle and came back. Uh, so fresh refresher course, I have not seen most of the Godzilla movies. In my defense, there's a lot of them. There's only like 33 of them. The point is, is that that's, so... it's, you can't get through it in a weekend. <laughs> Unless you're really determined. Unless you're playing them on like two times speed or something. Like it's, <laughs> I literally don't think it's possible to get through them all in a weekend. Yeah. Um... So, but, uh, I, so this, was, uh, this one was new to me. It's Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, which was the 14th Godzilla film, and uh, the it was the 20th anniversary film, wasn't it? Like, the, oh yeah, it was 20 years yeah. after the original, and uh, it was also the second to last in what is now called the Showa era. Explain the eras um, real fast. So, from uh, 19 for the first 20. One years of Godzilla films all belong to more or less the same continuity. Uh, they were all the same Godzilla. They were all made by uh, the same sort of special effects team. They're within a, uh, an arc. And then uh, in the 1980s, they brought the character, they brought Godzilla back in what is called the Heisei era. And that's when Godzilla 1985 came out. And they yeah. kind of rebooted it. Reboot. They rebooted yeah. it. And uh, then they did it again with uh, in 1999 with Godzilla 2000. That was the millennial era. And then they've made one additional film in the Shin, Shin era. Although there's currently no plans to make other Shin Godzilla films. Which is a pity because I love Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla stands yeah. so well on its own. Though. Yeah, like, that's true. Really it doesn't more. need to... We don't need like mm. other monsters in that. And, but, and then of course there's a Roland Emmerich uh, film. Which is technically considered part of the millennial era. Is it not? Because they included uh, that monster in one of the movies? Mm, uh, yeah, because in um, Godzilla Final Wars. Which was meant to be the last Godzilla film in 2004. They included that monster in. And they explained that that wasn't Godzilla. That was a monster Americans mistook for Godzilla and was in fact just this little iguana monster that Godzilla famously has the shortest fight in Godzilla history with. <laughs> like it, it shows up and goes, Rawr! and Godzilla picks it up and throws it against the Sydney Opera House and we're done. <laughs> you token yeah. mention. That's yeah. all you get. <laughs> and I mean, if officially mm. that, I do know this, officially that version of Godzilla from the Roland Emmerich movie, that's mm. actually just called Zilla. Zilla, yeah. That's the name of that. That was not a Godzilla movie. That was just a plain old non-Godzilla. It was an, just an, regular old Zilla. And yeah, and, and Toho did end up taking that monster and saying, what a piece of shit that was. I, I, I loved, um, I watched the new trailer for uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Mm. And and again, it's a trailer, it, even if it's a good-looking trailer, who knows if it'll accurately represent the film, who knows if the film will be good or not. But what I did notice was that Rebecca Hall is in the movie. She's like the new, like, actor we get to give this thing some real legitimacy because she's mm. so damn talented and the way she says godzilla <laughs> is so like she thought it out 
it's not just Godzilla. It's Godzilla. Like, mm. God colon Zilla. She <laughs> emphasizes the God. Mm. And there's something about that that makes this really, really silly Americanization of a Japanese word, Gojira. <laughs> and makes it suddenly work for mm. me in a way it never has before. Just because, like, we're focusing on... No, he's a God. Mm. You don't understand? He's God. <laughs> there's God. something really freaky about that. Um, it's supposed to be Gojira, but yeah. I know, but like the uh, American version, if you must go for it, that's the way to do it. It's <laughs> to make it elevated. Right. It's crazy. Um, over the course of the Showa era, at first it was just Godzilla, and Godzilla was a symbol for destruction and, and nuclear waste. And um, He was a horror monster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and over the course of the first few Godzilla movies, uh, Godzilla was still like an evil monster. Mm. But as more and more monsters were introduced into this Godzilla continuity... Godzilla's character changed into that of sort of a cantankerous, reluctant bouncer. Yeah. Like just kicking kicking monsters out of Japan because bullshit. Because <laughs> <laughs> so it's time it's time to be nice until it's not time to be nice. I, I remember you you were the one who I've never heard anyone else like mm. offer that. You've mentioned this description, yeah. I've heard people take it. But the idea of Godzilla not as like a hero or not as a god, but as like Japan's bouncer for giant monsters. Mm. Really, I the first time Godzilla shows up in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, huh. he doesn't just come out of the waves or the ground or whatever. He gets up and he shrugs his shoulders like a boxer, <laughs> and he just starts like and he holds his dukes up, mm. and he re- and I was just like, he is a bouncer. Yeah, he's looking for a fight. <laughs> he's so great. <laughs> Like not today, it's Saturday, <laughs> and uh, so um, this is about God's. Uh, first of all, Anguirus is in this movie. Anguirus is sort of like this uh, armadillo crawling yeah. monster. He looks like an ankylosaurus if you know yeah, anything about the, dinosaurs. That's what like it, a spiky the, shell. The, the movie opens, and again, I'm I haven't seen all the Godzilla movies that predate this. I've seen like three of right. the Godzilla movies that predate this. <laughs> um, so I'm coming in kind of blind. This is like, um, okay, look, I saw. Uh, Wes, I saw Iron Man, hmm. and I saw and then, Iron Man three, and I also and saw Doctor. War, and, yeah. No, no, and I saw Doctor Strange. <laughs> uh, and so I'm just gonna jump in and assume I can figure out Infinity War. Like that's where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. lost here. So the movie opens thusly, and again, if you know nothing about Godzilla, this is what you get. First off, the music groovy as fuck, jazz. Which like, started, really awesome jam. That, I think, started with Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, where they oh, yeah. started, like, incorporating a lot hipper music. Yeah. Before that, it was that old, good old or- orchestral pounding Godzilla theme, which isn't in this movie. It's really un- uh, yeah. un- disappointing. Godzilla's yeah, theme bum, music bum, is bum, 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 ba-da, bum, 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 that one. Yeah, great. Um, one of the great mm-hmm. monster scores. Uh, but in any case, yeah, this is cool Godzilla. So I'm already I'm off, I'm off mm-hmm. my balance. I'm like, oh, this is fucking awesome Godzilla. Then... Like, there's a big Ankylosaurus monster who roars so loud mm. that a mountain explodes, and the title of the movie was In the Mountain. Mm. Well... And that's and that's all I got. I don't know the context yet. Yeah. That's all I got. And I'm like, well, that's fucking cool. <laughs> like, more of this, please. Yeah, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Um, 
Yeah, Anguirus roars, a mountain starts to crumble. There are some human characters, who cares? Uh, <laughs> but human, I want to talk about the human plot um, because it's weirdly elaborate, actually. There is but... an elaborate human plot that where uh, there's some scientists looking around in a cave and they find an ancient statue of something called King Caesar. King Caesar, which sounds like a dog food mascot, uh, but yeah. it's it's this weird dog creature. Yeah, it's, and it's actually been, it's uh, actually another one where like the original Japanese word is not the name for a Roman emperor. It was actually I think Shiza, yeah. and then they just translated it it's as Caesar. Caesar, yeah. yeah. So King King Caesar, and uh, while they're researching uh, King Caesar and this statue. Uh, they are beset by some evil spy-looking guys who are trying to steal it for reasons unknown. And also Interpol, who is chasing them both. Yeah. Really, just so, like, uh, it's it's a damn, one of the more complicated James Bond spy movies. Yeah. And then it gets weirder later, but we'll get to that. But uh, meanwhile, uh, Godzilla appears and starts wrecking shit in yeah. a way that God's, that's out of character for Godzilla. Yeah. Godzilla <laughs> has, I know this much, Godzilla yeah. hasn't been... The bad guy Godzilla, I emerge from the waves or from the mountain or wherever the fuck I was, and I just start wailing on shit. It's like, Godzilla's here, he's got his hero stance, he looks really cool, and then he sees an apartment complex and wrecks it. Mm. And I'm like, was that a bad apartment complex? Was that mm. like and then, a bunch then of evil uh, people in there? It's like the apartment complex from like the raid? Where where are we here? And Godzilla's roaring, but it's a high-pitched roar. Yeah, it it's different from, from, uh, from Godzilla's roar. And, 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 and Garrus shows up, and he's just like, Hey, fuck off. And, and they start to fight, and the people who are looking on are saying, why would Anguirus attack his friend Godzilla? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I follow, buddies, on, yeah. I follow them on Instagram. I know that they just... They know each other. Anguirus just retweeted Godzilla this morning. <laughs> so, like, this is weird that they're on the outs like this. But and uh, then Anguirus... during, during the fight, Anguirus, like, bites Godzilla, and there's a little shiny bit where, where Anguirus bit Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, God, Godzilla fucking breaks his jaw it's really horrifying <laughs> like a lot of blood and a movie, it's, like, it's like what king kong does to the dinosaur in the original king kong it like mm. rips the jaw open mm. and it's just like angiris is not okay man like he walks it off but they, like they are giant monsters they heal fast i guess but mm. i think someone has to set that bone i don't know who's gonna do that I'm like mothra mothra's, mothra's, mothra's got the, the silk thread it'll thread up his jaw <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, it's, I don't have a better theory. But, I'm uh, going to agree with it. But Go- Godzilla funny. charges over to uh, a power plant and starts uh, laying waste to that. And everybody's yeah. like, holy shit, dude, what are you doing? And who should be waiting there for Godzilla but Godzilla? The actual the Godzilla. The real Godzilla. And he starts ripping into the new Godzilla. And, you know, like when we saw that little tiny, shiny mm-hmm. thing underneath his skin, all of Godzilla's mm-hmm. flesh rips off and he's a mecha Godzilla under it. And it turns out aliens have invented a robot Godzilla mm-hmm. in order to frame Godzilla for the destruction well, of Japan, I guess? They, they, they have, I don't know why they had to dress up Mecha Godzilla. All it's established is that they needed something to fight Godzilla off because they can't take over the world with Godzilla hanging around. And Godzilla is Earth's mightiest monster, mm. so they created another Godzilla. Another Godzilla. I get it. It's comic book logic, but mm. I get it. Yeah. There, here's what I love about the movies, especially of the late Showa era, is they seem taken unadulterated straight from the imagination of a seven-year-old yeah it's like it has this weird axe cop dream logic to it where a kid is just sort of making it up as they go along yeah 
And there's something so unbelievably pure about that, at least yeah. at, at least when it comes to my oh. imagination, because I'm so on the wavelength of a film like this. Well, there's there's two movies going on mm-hmm. here. There's the movie that the monsters are going through, and then there's the movie that the peoples are going through. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the monsters... <laughs> the, movie, the movie that the peoples are going through. <laughs> the monsters and the peoples. <laughs> it's 1.34 in the morning. Cut me some slack. <laughs> the peoples versus Godzilla. <laughs> Anyway, there's the movie Godzilla's going through and the movie all the human characters no one cares about are going through. And Godzilla is going through a weird day where his buddy Anguirus, like, calls him up on the phone and his jaw's dislocated. Like, oh, hey, Anguirus, what's up? Mecha Godzilla, huh? Okay, I'll be right there. All right. And he shows up and it's like, dude. And then he rips the skin off of himself, (laughs) which is a weird day even no matter what the context. And then there's a big robot version of me. And you know that Godzilla's thinking to himself, that doesn't look a thing like me. <laughs> that doesn't. You have not captured the spirit, and so he beats the shit out like, of Mechagodzilla. I, I like the fact Godzilla, like there's even a reaction shot where we see we see Mechagodzilla for the first time. We're like, holy shit! And <laughs> I love and Godzilla, Godzilla kind of kind of like uh, kind of like words like cocks his head to the side like the fuck. Do you what, remember what is going on, man? Do you remember hmm. back when the MTV Movie Awards used to give out lifetime achievement awards to, be, to characters and not actors? Oh yeah, and they gave one to Godzilla one they year. They did. Yeah. Patrick Stewart showed up and he looked so fucking cool. He wore like a fitted suit but a Hawaiian shirt. And I thought to myself, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen anyone wear. And that is my <laughs> new style icon, Mr. Patrick Stewart. And Patrick Stewart came up and no one knew who was supposed to like get them the Lifetime Achievement Award. And he was talking about, yeah, it's one of the greatest actors mm. in the international scene. He can Reveal more with a lift of an eyebrow than I could with decades of Shakespearean experience. Ladies and gentlemen, Godzilla. <laughs> and, and I love like the, the respect Patrick Stewart had for Godzilla as a performer. And there's something really beautiful about that. Godzilla is in, like an official Japanese ambassador. Like yeah. Godzilla has an ambassadorship. Yeah, Godzilla is an important figure. Mm-hmm. And Godzilla is, and again, I, I know this through less experience than you, um, even though he doesn't necessarily have a lot of melodrama, he is a character. Yeah, Godzilla, he has yeah, an attitude and a personality, mm-hmm. and he's and even and, and the fact that we don't understand him doesn't really make a difference because you get the impression half the time is like, same shit, bring it, yeah, yeah, same shit, different day, bring it. I beat up Angus, and now we're cool, and now you're mm-hmm. gonna. Whatever, just fucking bring it. I'll fight whoever. You want me to fight King Caesar? You want me to fight King Koopa? Yeah, there, there's, there's a, and then there's a big dead period in the middle of the movie where uh, Mechagodzilla Mecha breaks, fl- breaks down and has to fly back to the alien base where the aliens have to fix him. Yeah. And then there's all this intrigue about how the humans have to find out who's behind all of this. And they shoot one of the aliens in the face and it's revealed, their true form is revealed and they look like Planet of the Apes apes. Yeah, th- that I wasn't ready for. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. To find yeah. out this is a Planet of the Apes crossover you're, of some kind. You're watching this while high, you'll be shocked. Yeah, it's, it was really weird and there's this weird early morphing effect mm-hmm. and... Um, it, it, it was like the fade like they did in the Wolfman. Well, it's like, like the fade but they yeah. added some animation over the face to kind of hide it and yeah. Made it look kind of like the blob or something. It was it was neat. Mm-hmm. It, it's something not an effect I've seen done that way a lot. But, uh, but one, so, once the aliens are discovered and the humans are back at the base, they say we're going to take over the world. Okay, they, but you're 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 skipping some stuff because I do want to focus on some of the weird details about these aliens. All right, they've got that very specific 1960s, 1970s 
sci-fi production design costume design vibe. They're wearing bright silver jackets, you know, and they've yeah. got these like weird sterile rooms and environments and they're drinking like from decanters of green liquid. Just green. Don't know what it is, but we know it's green, so it's spacey. They're not making, you know, Mechagodzilla out of metal. They're making them out of space titanium. Space titanium. Which is better than the usual kind. Um, I was watching this with my wife, and she was upset that that was the term they went with. Space titanium? Just just space titanium? You couldn't come up with a word? Yeah. No, no, we want to make sure people at home understand the gist of it. So, but here's the thing. Godzilla breaks, and these are highly advanced aliens that have, like, discovered, like, interstellar travel. And they, can build, build, they, they can build a Mechagodzilla. They build a Mechagodzilla. But in order to fix a Mechagodzilla, they need a human scientist. Why? I don't know. But they need a human scientist, so they kidnap the scientist. Because he, he, he has some experience with space titanium, as it was established earlier on the movie. So do they. They built Mechagodzilla. This is ridiculous. This is, and I know this is ridiculous fundamentally, but it's not even following its own internal logic in and any they, way. It feels really forced. It would, they, be they, like uh, if, it would be like if Lex Luthor kidnapped like a college professor after all of this time... Because the guy wrote a book on kryptonite. I'm like, no, Lex knows about kryptonite by now. <laughs> I think he's got the gist. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, they shoot some of these aliens in the face. They throw the professor and his like sidekick and his and, like niece or something. And they throw them in a room. And they're going to kill them all because they've outlived their usefulness. And the room is going to bake them alive. Yeah. But it's not going to do it quickly. No, 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 no. As we all know, if you really want to, like, savor the juices of something you're cooking, you put it on a low heat. No, absolutely. So they have, like, a couple of hours for, like, the other guys to, like, find the ste- the secret stalactite mm-hmm. that, like, has a button in it overhead. Stalactites are the ones overhead because they have to hang they on cling, tight. cling tight to the ceiling. I used to be confused because I thought stalagmites were the ones on the ceiling because they might fall on you. Mm-hmm. Which also makes sense to me, but it's still like yeah, they, they might reach the top. That's yeah. The way, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't. Uh, and uh, so they they rescue them, and oh, isn't it great? And then they manage to uh, uh, they get the statue that they and they need to put it in a specific place at a specific time, like when the thrush mm. knocks in the Hobbit. <laughs> I and, said that very thing when I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> Stand by the gravestone when the thrush knocks. And so they put this this statue of King Caesar like on a thing. And King Caesar suddenly, like, appears in the mountain. And he looks really creepy, actually. He looks like he's right out of the movie Haxon or something. And then... Does look vaguely demonic. Yeah, yeah. kind of monstrous. He's a monster. Uh, but then nothing's happening. And Godzilla's yeah, fighting Mechagodzilla. King Caesar's asleep. Yeah, Godzilla's fighting Mechagodzilla. And they're like, we should probably help that guy out. And so then uh, this uh, girl who had... She's like... Uh, it, the movie takes place in Okinawa instead of Japan. Yeah. Uh, well, it, you mean instead of Tokyo? Instead of Tokyo, sorry. Instead of main, instead, instead of the main island is what I meant. The okay. main island. Yeah. It would be like if I said it takes place in Hawaii instead of America. You know yeah. what I mean? My apologies. Sorry. It wasn't right. Um, uh, it takes place in Okinawa, and Okinawa has its own unique history and uh, its own unique conflicts. And um, so King Caesar is like the Okinawa kaiju. Mm. Uh and they need that monster to defend Okinawa. Godzilla mm-hmm. can only can't do it on his own. 
So while Godzilla's fighting Mechagodzilla, Mechagodzilla's fucking shooting like rainbows at his eyes and shit. It <laughs> looks really great. Rainbow laser, chest laser, finger and toe missiles. And yeah, pretty rotate sweet. Rotate his head all the way around. Pretty yeah. fucking sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to wake King Caesar, this like descendant of like the, mm-hmm. the royalty of Okinawa has to sing a badass King Caesar song on the beach. Oh, a ballad. She sings a ballad. Yeah, but it's, it, like, gen- it's, it's got it's got oomph to it though. Yeah. Is my point. It's not just and, like and there's precedent for this because that's how Mothra was was awakened was sure. with song. And in fact, uh, the little miniature uh, twins that we saw in Mothra movies uh, typically were played by like pop duos. Like they yeah. they hired singers to play the Mothra twins. Yeah. King Caesar emerges, and King Caesar looks like what would happen if you put Gizmo and Stripe in a blender. It, like it he looks, looks like he looks like a furry gremlin crossed with a reptile gremlin. It looks like the final Pokemon evolution. Like it's it's stretched out and mean looking now. Like, I don't know why I thought King Caesar would look really cool. Turns out, no, he's got a cool face, mm. and I like that he has like pr- like ears that have like real like movement to them. Like, mm. like they, they are they articulate the ears and they stick yeah. up and yeah, kind of like floppy dog ears. That's kind of fun. King Caesar is and- dog ish. But um, he, it, other than his one weird move where when Mechagodzilla shoots rainbow lasers into King Caesar's, like, right eye, he can shoot them back out his left eye. Yeah. Which I don't quite get, but is can, cool. Can bounce him back, yeah. essentially. Um, but then he fights, uh, then he teams up with Godzilla. Godzilla never really fights King Caesar. Mm. Uh, they team up to fight Mechagodzilla. They beat the shit out of Mechagodzilla. Mm, Godzilla... Twist his fucking head off. <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone, and, everyone, uh, uh, all of the like kidnapped scientists and everything, like murder all the aliens. And, more or less, yeah. There's yeah. like a final siege on the alien there's a, home there's, base. There's a few shots of genuine violence in this. People getting shot in the face, or mm-hmm. there's a bit where like Godzilla is attacked and he's gushing blood, like gushing out of his neck. It's great. Which it's, great. it's cool. It's I'm spraying not, blood everywhere. I'm not pretending it's not cool, but I was a little surprised by how graphic it was. <laughs> um, and uh, and then uh, they save the day. And everyone's like, cool, thanks, King, King Caesar. King, King Caesar Caesar's gets, like, gets, bye. It's like, see you later. Get yeah. back in the mountain. I'll be back in, what is it, Final Wars is when he comes back or something? Like, he comes yeah. back like once, right? I think if, if it was any of them, it would have been Final Wars. Yeah, he comes back like one more time. Mm-hmm. I, I did a little research. I forgot what movie he came back in. Um, and uh, yeah, final, final war, the joke again, with final wars is they tried to bring back all the monsters yeah. as many as possible anyway and then godzilla is just like well this one was weird bye and then uh mecha godzilla never came back except in the, the immediate next movie terror of mecha godzilla in 1975 okay so he never came back after that no and then he came back in two other movies in the heisei area and in fact in the heisei area the uh the conceit with mecha godzilla was they uh went to the ocean floor where the original Godzilla was killed. If you've seen the 1954 film, yeah. it was the oxygen destroyer and it melted all of Godzilla's flesh off. So there's a big Godzilla skeleton down there. Uh, in the Heisei era, they salvaged that skeleton and built, humans built Mechagodzilla around Godzilla's original skeleton. Yeah. So it had like Godzilla powers inside the of it. The new Godzilla one's like, yeah, that one's like Godzilla's like child or something, right? Or is it just like no, a the, clone? The, or we, like... we also, uh, How does it work? Well, that original Godzilla was was a different monster. That's what one is. And then, Godzilla, then yeah. and then immediately in the next Godzilla movie, it was a different monster. Yeah, and because it, they, and it was they that killed the dead, and they yeah, didn't really and, think it'd be a sequel. So, out so that it. one was has always been dead, and then the Godzilla we've been following in all the subsequent movies were a different mm. Godzilla, a very forgiving Godzilla. Eventually, yeah, like like I know you killed my dad or mom or 
cousin or whatever the fuck that other Godzilla was. But uh, <laughs> we're cool, right? All right. It's and cool. King, King Kong kicked his ever-loving ass. Do you think, and I know we don't usually engage in speculation about upcoming movies, but yeah. we got an upcoming Godzilla movie, and it's going to have Godzilla versus Kong. It's an American Godzilla. It, is. it doesn't, doesn't really count. But uh, fair right. enough, but it's still, <laughs> it's still a giant monster movie, and those yeah. are always fun. Do you think Mecha Godzilla is going to show up somewhere? Sure. I mean, they they yeah. they went for broke and they brought back uh, you know, Mothra and Rodan and, and King Ghidorah for the last Godzilla movie. So yeah, sure, why not? Right. All I want is for Millie Bobby Brown, who's back from King mm-hmm. of Monsters. Uh, I want her to pilot Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> that's what I want. I think that's the sweet spot. I think that's mm-hmm. where this becomes like really fun. Just so long if, as it's if, not if, like if this is like sixteen year old kid is just like driving around Mecha Godzilla like. <laughs> So, so long as those big comical like slot machine type levers that she gets to pull with her you whole arm. You can't the levers. Out. You can't just have them feel like a fun bunch it's, of iPads in there. No, no the, you it's, it's going to be it's going to be like floating digital displays where she waves her hands through the air. So I remember, there's this uh, anime series called Robotech, which was about how um, you know we were in the middle of World War Three, and then a giant alien spaceship lands on like an island. And we Earth immediately declares peace because, well, apparently there's a greater threat out there because there's mm-hmm. like fifty foot tall giant aliens. So they, we start building new technology to like go into the stars, but we also build these like giant fighter jets that can turn into giant robots so that we can fight these giant aliens. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where um, a, a young pilot in the pilot, um, a young pilot on the pilot, uh, he gets into the cockpit, and there's like, like. Um, there's like 20 pedals for his feet, and he doesn't know what the hell they do. He's like, "What do I? How do I robot this? What do I?" And it's like, "Yes, yeah, complicated. It would be. Like, I would hope so. It should be. Like, it's hard hard enough to learn to drive a car, much yeah. less a gigantic super robot." Anyway, um, I'd never seen this Godzilla movie before. It's uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Oh, it's delightful. Gonna, it was fun. It was cheesy, but in a good way. Um, this, this one was done by uh, Jun Fukuda, who mm. has, had, I think this is uh, Jun Fukuda's fifth Godzilla movie. Okay. And, so. uh, and that is to say, Finding it, stride. it was not made by Ishiro Honda, who did a lot of the earlier Godzilla movies and actually brought a little bit of gravitas yeah. and, and majesty to these uh, Jun Fukuda did the Saturday morning version. He did the fun, uh, fun attack version. Yeah, and I, and I like this version. I do. I, I had a really, really good time with it. Um, it has the same problem that I think I've had with literally every Godzilla movie, regardless of who made it, which is after a while, I don't care about the humans. No, like the humans are no, there. The it's... humans are there at the beginning uh, to go. Oh, something's happening. Yeah, we need thirty minutes of human just so we can like work our way up to the monster mayhem. Yeah, maybe there's like a new monster mm. or whatever like that. And I think even thirty minutes is a lot. Twenty tops. <laughs> All right, and then and then I don't want it to be just monsters kicking the shit out of each other because that will get old after a while if you're doing a feature length film. You do have to break it up with something. But I don't need nearly as much humanity. And by the mm. way. This movie is like less than 90 minutes long. Yeah. And it still feels really padded. <laughs> this feels like an hour long episode. This feels like, you know, every, this feels like a Smallville, like every week there's a new monster kind of thing. Uh, this feels like a really good Monster of the Week episode that got stretched into a feature film for like no good reason. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun with it. It's a blast. It's currently on the Criterion channel. It's also on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um I, I watched it out of my gigantic Godzilla Criterion box set. You're welcome. Which I have thanks to you. Yes. You got the, that was Happy, a Christmas gift from William here. Happy Christmas. 
Um, but, um, yeah, no, it's a hoot. I'm so glad I saw it. Please see it, uh, you know, with a new Godzilla movie on the horizon. And it's been like, we've only had like two or three major, like zeitgeisty franchise movies in the last year. So Mm. I think the reason everyone's like really falling over themselves to talk about Godzilla versus Kong is because it's just been a minute since we've had something that we had like Wonder Woman 1984 and like, that's it. Like nothing else. Like. Kind of big franchisey, yeah, well, there was silly. There was also thing. Mulan, but that didn't get a lot of traction. But Mulan was even even that was months earlier, though. They were really yeah. spaced out, is my point. So yeah. I think everyone's just excited to be talking about something sci-fi ridiculous yeah. for a little bit. And so um, if you're like champing at the bit, like I can't wait to see Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Godzilla movies out there. See them. There's yeah, they're there's all about, there. About thirty Godzilla movies. If you want something a little more modern, watch Rampage. Uh, Rampage that, is that, a good that, kaiju that's, movie. That's a good kaiju movie. I really like that movie. I like, I like Rampage better than the new American Godzilla films, frankly. I, I like, uh, I think the original, not the original, uh, the, the first film in the new wave of American mm. Godzilla films has some good Godzilla stuff, but you really got to work through it to get to you it. You got to wait a long, yeah. like way too long to get to the Godzilla I will give stuff. King of the Monsters, Godzilla King of the Monsters, some credit. They don't fuck around. There's yeah, they, they Mothra least, shows up in scene two. They, they at least, yeah, they brought <laughs> like, in the monsters fast. King Ghidra is fighting people in scene five. So, like it's a lot of monster mayhem. I don't think it, it looks was particularly cool. good monster mayhem, but I, at least there's a lot of it. I think they knew how to find good frames. Like mm. it was all like, here's an amazing image and there's some monster stuff you can barely make out. Mm. Here's an amazing image. And it's an okay way to make a giant monster movie. Um, the plot stupid <laughs> and who i'm really ca- who, I, who cares frankly it's one of that's another one of those like big who, hollywood oh gosh, movies was it, the, who was the uh like the double crossing doctor vera farmiga it was vera farmiga yeah it's one of those movies and there's a whole bunch of them lately where the villain is an environmentalist who because we care so much about climate change and the environment and how like the world is going to be inhabitable to humans, we have to kill all the humans because yeah. environmentalists are the true evil and I am sick and fucking tired of that fucking subplot. That's that was the, that was the villain in Aquaman. That was the villain in Hobbs and Shaw. Hell, that's fucking Thanos. Like, More or less. Yeah, yeah, his whole thing is like, oh, in order to save the universe, we have to kill everybody. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it, you ever wonder why it's difficult to like get people to rally around these causes sometimes? Maybe we need to stop demonizing that shit all the time. It's cute once, but when it becomes the default, it's like all people can think about. Um, but anyway, I got, I digress. I like the, I actually kind of like the new like monster movie cycles. Then Kong Skull Island is a bunch of stupid fun. Um, good, stupid fun. Yeah, I, I had a good time with it. Uh, I saw it the way, you know, the filmmakers intended on a plane, um, uh, like on the back of a chair, but I had a good time. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, King of Monsters is fun and uh, the new one looks cool. And of course we'll review it in a couple of months and, uh, hopefully it's decent, or great, not too bad. I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, but anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with reviews of more movies. And I forgot to check out what they were. Some things that we're watching. But we will review them. Indeed. Next week on Critically Acclaimed. Uh, also, next week on Critically Acclaimed, we are going to be reviewing another streaming club film. Uh, you can head on over to our Patreon, where we're going to have a poll to decide. And all of the movies that are on the poll are actually from Shout Factory TV, a service we haven't technically covered before, although it is also included uh, in the uh, Tubi service. Mm. So uh, you can either watch it through Shout Factory TV or you can watch it through Tubi. Uh, Shout Factory TV is free. That's true, as Mm. is Tubi. Mm. Watch some commercials and you're all set. Uh, So, uh, yeah, these are mostly cult movies. 
to diff- of different stripes. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Whitney chose two, and I chose two. Uh, I chose Class of 1984. Uh, which is a dystopian sci-fi film about ah teenagers and the awful future and they're so bad. It's punk, so bad. Punk, punk rock classic. Yeah, punk punk rock like juvenile delinquent, but in like Robocop mm-hmm. kind of world kind of thing. And uh, I've never seen it all the way through. Um, I also chose Hawk the Slayer, uh, which was uh, sort of a sword and sandal, uh, sword sorry, sword and sorcery uh, kind of pulp thing about a guy named Hawk. He's a slayer. He's hunky. He's gonna fight that monster. Probably get the girl, uh, you know, some flowers. Really, <laughs> really treat her nice. Um, we'll find out when we see the movie. <laughs> I've never seen a Hogwarts slayer. I don't know. I just know it's one of those. It's one of the few, like you know, sort of sword and sorcery films of the era that I haven't seen. And then Whitney chose uh, Penelope Spears's Suburbia, another punk rock movie, which I actually haven't seen. Mm. And he also chose. Uh, the Richard Rush film, The Stuntman, uh, starring Peter O'Toole, who got an Academy Award nomination for it, as a filmmaker who uh, finds a, an escaped convict uh, while making a movie. The escaped convict accidentally gets a stuntman killed by wandering into his shot, and Peter O'Toole hi- hires him to replace him as a stuntman, but maybe trying to kill him on camera. <laughs> I love the stuntman, and by all means, vote for whatever you want. But I've been trying to get Winnie to watch this one for a while, so I got my fingers crossed. But I'm happy to watch any of those movies. They all sound really cool. Um, okay, and that's that. Uh, obviously, we have a whole bunch of other stuff here at the Critically Acclaimed uh, Network. Enjoy Episode Zero and Cancel Too Soon and all the other stuff. We've got Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, where we have a lot of exclusive content, podcasts about Star Trek, podcasts about Batman, podcasts about the Academy Awards, Disney, commentary tracks. We just did one for a Goofy movie that's exclusive to Patreon. Um, we also have uh, M. Lopez da Silva, my wife and partner, and I. Uh, we have a new soap business. If you go to <laughs> Etsy.com, uh, there's a, the shop is called Salt Cat Soap. Uh, we have some unique designs on there. Uh, these are handcrafted. They're very cool. And we're going to be adding new designs on the first Saturday of every month. Up, uh, We still have, I think, a couple of uh, bars dedicated to our late and wonderful cat, Sergio. We made mm. a limited run. They smell like laundry. And uh, he loved laundry very, very much. Um, so uh, we, might, we might have a couple of those left. I don't know, basically, mm. by the time you watch the episode. Because, again, we only made like a dozen. So, um, But in any case... Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we wouldn't be here. Uh, email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If you want to talk about anything discussed in this episode, we might read your email in upcoming We've Got Mail. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. Everyone's a critic.